Chapter 12 Silver and Opals Where was Dumbledore, and what was he doing? Harry caught sight of the headmaster only twice over the next few weeks. He rarely appeared at meals anymore, and Harry was sure Hermione was right in thinking that he was leaving the school for days at a time. Had Dumbledore forgotten the lessons he was supposed to be giving Harry? Dumbledore had said that the lessons were leading to something to do with the prophecy. Harry had felt bolstered, comforted, and now he felt slightly abandoned. Halfway through October came their first trip of the term to Hogsmeade. Harry had wondered whether these trips would still be allowed, given the increasingly tight security measures around the school, but was pleased to know that they were going ahead. It was always good to get out of the castle grounds for a few hours. Harry woke early on the morning of the trip, which was proving stormy, and whiled away the time until breakfast by reading his copy of Advanced Potion Making. He did not usually lie in bed reading his textbooks. That sort of behavior, as Ron rightly said, was indecent in anybody except Hermione, who was simply weird that way. Harry felt, however, that the Half-Blood Prince's copy of Advanced Potion Making hardly qualified as a textbook. The more Harry pored over the book, the more he realized how much was in there. Not only the handy hints and shortcuts on potions that were earning him such a glowing reputation with Slughorn, but also the imaginative little jinxes and hexes scribbled in the margins, which Harry was sure, judging by the crossings out and revisions, that the prince had invented himself. Harry had already attempted a few of the prince's self-invented spells, there had been a hex that caused toenails to grow alarmingly fast. He had tried this on Crab in the corridor with very entertaining results. A jinx that glued the tongue to the roof of the mouth, which he had twice used to general applause on an unsuspecting Argus filch. And, perhaps most useful of all, Muffliato, a spell that filled the ears of anyone nearby with an unidentifiable buzzing so that lengthy conversations could be held in class without being overheard. The only person who did not find these charms amusing was Hermione, who maintained a rigidly disapproving expression throughout and refused to talk at all if Harry had used the Muffliato spell on anyone in the vicinity. Sitting up in bed, Harry turned the book sideways so as to examine more closely the scribbled instructions for a spell that seemed to have caused the prince some trouble. There were many crossings out and alterations, but finally, crammed into a corner of the page, the scribble, Levicorpus, N-V-B-L. While the wind and sleet pounded relentlessly on the windows and Neville snored loudly, Harry stared at the letters in brackets, N-V-B-L. That had to mean non-verbal. Harry rather doubted he would be able to bring off this particular spell, he was still having difficulty with nonverbal spells, something Snape had been quick to comment on in every DADA class. On the other hand, the prince had proved a much more effective teacher than Snape so far. Pointing his wand at nothing in particular, he gave it an upward flick and said, Levicorpus, inside his head. Ah! There was a flash of light, and the room was full of voices. Everyone had woken up as Ron had let out a yell. Harry sent advanced potion-making flying in panic. Ron was dangling upside down in midair as though an invisible hook had hoisted him up by the ankle. Sorry, 
yelled Harry as Dean and Seamus roared with laughter, and Neville picked himself up from the floor, having fallen out of bed. Hang on, I'll let you down. He groped for the potion book and riffled through it in panic, trying to find the right page. At last, he located it and deciphered one cramped word underneath the spell. Praying that this was the counterjinx, Harry thought, Liberocorpus, with all his might. There was another flash of light, and Ron fell in a heap onto his mattress. Sorry, repeated Harry weakly, while Dean and Seamus continued to roar with laughter. Tomorrow, said Ron in a muffled voice, I'd rather you set the alarm clock. By the time they had got dressed, padding themselves out with several of Mrs. Weasley's hand-knitted sweaters and carrying cloaks, scarves, and gloves, Ron's shock had subsided, and he had decided that Harry's new spell was highly amusing. So amusing, in fact, that he lost no time in regaling Hermione with the story as they sat down for breakfast. And then there was another flash of light, and I landed on the bed again, Ron grinned helping himself to sausages. Hermione had not cracked a smile during this anecdote, and now turned an expression of wintry disapproval upon Harry. Was this spell, by any chance, another one from that potion book of yours? she asked. Harry frowned at her. Always jump to the worst conclusion, don't you? Was it? Well, yeah, it was. But so what? So you just decided to try out an unknown handwritten incantation and see what would happen? Why does it matter if it's handwritten, said Harry, preferring not to answer the rest of the question. Because it's probably not Ministry of Magic approved, said Hermione. And also, she added, as Harry and Ron rolled their eyes, because I'm starting to think this prince character was a bit dodgy. Both Harry and Ron shouted her down at once. It was a laugh! said Ron, upending a ketchup bottle over his sausages. Just a laugh, Hermione, that's all. Dangling people upside down by the ankle, said Hermione. Who puts their time and energy into making up spells like that? Fred and George, said Ron, shrugging. It's their kind of thing. And, uh, my dad, said Harry. He had only just remembered. What, said Ron and Hermione together? My dad used this spell, said Harry. I, Lupin told me. This last part was not true. In fact, Harry had seen his father use the spell on Snape, but he had never told Ron and Hermione about that particular excursion into the pensive. Now, however, a wonderful possibility occurred to him. Could the half-blood prince possibly be? Maybe your dad did use it, Harry, said Hermione, but he's not the only one. We've seen a whole bunch of people use it in case you've forgotten. Dangling people in the air, making them float along, asleep, helpless. Harry stared at her. With a sinking feeling, he too remembered the behavior of the Death Eaters at the Quidditch World Cup. Ron came to his aid. That was different, he said robustly. They were abusing it. Harry and his dad were just having a laugh. You don't like the prince, Hermione? he added, pointing a sausage at her sternly, because he's better than you at potions. It's got nothing to do with that, said Hermione, her cheeks reddening. I just think it's very irresponsible to start performing spells when you don't even know what they're for, and stop talking about the prince as if it's his title. I bet it's just a stupid nickname, and it doesn't seem as though he was a very nice person to me.
I don't see where you get that from, said Harry heatedly. If he'd been a budding Death Eater, he wouldn't have been boasting about being half-blood, would he? Even as he said it, Harry remembered that his father had been pure blood. But he pushed the thought out of his mind. He would worry about that later. The Death Eaters can't all be pure blood. There aren't enough pure blood wizards left, said Hermione stubbornly. I expect most of them are half-bloods, pretending to be pure. It's only Muggleborns they hate. They'd be quite happy to let you and Ron join up. There's no way they'd let me be a Death Eater, said Ron indignantly, a bit of sausage flying off the fork he was now brandishing at Hermione and hitting Ernie Macmillan on the head. My whole family are blood traitors. That's as bad as Muggleborns to Death Eaters. And they'd love to have me, said Harry sarcastically. We'd be best pals if they didn't keep trying to do me in. This made Ron laugh. Even Hermione gave a grudging smile, and a distraction arrived in the shape of Ginny. Hey, Harry, I'm supposed to give you this. It was a scroll of parchment with Harry's name written upon it in familiar, thin, slanting writing. Thanks, Ginny. It's Dumbledore's next lesson. Harry told Ron and Hermione, pulling open the parchment and quickly reading its contents. Monday evening. He felt suddenly light and happy. Want to join us in Hogsmeade, Ginny? he asked. I'm going with Dean. Might see you there, she replied, waving at them as she left. Filch was standing at the oak front doors as usual, checking off the names of people who had permission to go into Hogsmeade. The process took even longer than normal, as Filch was triple-checking everybody with his secrecy sensor. What does it matter if we're smuggling dark stuff out? demanded Ron, eyeing the long, thin secrecy sensor with apprehension. Surely you ought to be checking what we bring back in. His cheek earned him a few extra jabs with the sensor, and he was still wincing as they stepped out into the wind and sleet. The walk into Hogsmeade was not enjoyable. Harry wrapped his scarf over his lower face. The exposed parts soon felt both raw and numb. The road to the village was full of students bent double against the bitter wind. More than once, Harry wondered whether they might not have had a better time in the warm common room. And when they finally reached Hogsmeade and saw that Zonko's joke shop had been boarded up, Harry took it as confirmation that this trip was not destined to be fun. Ron pointed, with a thickly gloved hand, toward Honeydukes, which was mercifully open, and Harry and Hermione staggered in his wake into the crowded shop. Thank God, shivered Ron, as they were enveloped by warm, toffee-scented air. Let's stay here all afternoon. Harry, my boy, said a booming voice from behind them. Oh, no, muttered Harry. The three of them turned to see Professor Slughorn, who was wearing an enormous furry hat and an overcoat with matching fur collar, clutching a large bag of crystallized pineapple and occupying at least a quarter of the shop. Harry, that's three of my little suppers you've missed now, said Slughorn, poking him genially in the chest. It won't do, my boy. I'm determined to have you. Miss Granger loves them, don't you? Yes, said Hermione helplessly. They're really... So, why don't you come along, Harry? demanded Slughorn. Well, I've had Quidditch practice, Professor, said Harry, who had indeed been scheduling practices every time Slughorn had sent him a little violet ribbon-adorned invitation. 
This strategy meant that Ron was not left out, and they usually had a laugh with Ginny, imagining Hermione shut up with McLagan and Zabini. Well, I certainly expect you to win your first match after all this hard work, said Slughorn. But a little recreation never hurt anybody. Now, how about Monday night? You can't possibly want to practice in this weather. I can't, Professor. I've got... Uh, an appointment with Professor Dumbledore that evening. Unlucky again, cried Slughorn dramatically. Ah, well, you can't evade me forever, Harry. And with a regal wave, he waddled out of the shop, taking as little notice of Ron as though he had been a display of cockroach clusters. I can't believe you've wriggled out of another one, said Hermione, shaking her head. They're not that bad, you know. They're even quite fun sometimes. But then she caught sight of Ron's expression. Oh, look, they've got deluxe sugar quills. Those would last hours. Glad that Hermione had changed the subject, Harry showed much more interest in the new extra-large sugar quills than he normally would have done, but Ron continued to look moody and merely shrugged when Hermione asked him where he wanted to go next. Let's go to the three broomsticks, said Harry. It'll be warm. They bundled their scarves back over their faces and left the sweet shop. The bitter wind was like knives on their faces after the sugary warmth of honeydukes. The street was not very busy. Nobody was lingering to chat, just hurrying toward their destinations. The exceptions were two men, a little ahead of them, standing just outside the three broomsticks. One was very tall and thin. Squinting through his rain-washed glasses, Harry recognized the barman who worked in the other Hogsmeade pub, the Hog's Head. As Harry, Ron, and Hermione drew closer, the barman drew his cloak more tightly around his neck and walked away, leaving the shorter man to fumble with something in his arms. They were barely feet from him when Harry realized who the man was. Mundungus! The squat, bandy-legged man with long, straggly ginger hair jumped and dropped an ancient suitcase, which burst open, releasing what looked like the entire contents of a junk shop window. Oh, hello, Harry, said Mundungus Fletcher, with a most unconvincing stab at airiness. Well, don't let me keep you. And he began scrabbling on the ground to retrieve the contents of his suitcase with every appearance of a man eager to be gone. Are you selling this stuff? asked Harry, watching Mundungus grab an assortment of grubby-looking objects from the ground. Oh, well, got to escape a living, said Mundungus. Give me that. Ron had stooped down and picked up something silver. Hang on, Ron said slowly. This looks familiar. Thank you, said Mundungus, snatching the goblet out of Ron's hand and stuffing it back into the case. Well, I'll see you all. Ouch! Harry had pinned Mundungus against the wall of the pub by the throat. Holding him fast with one hand, he pulled out his wand. Harry! squealed Hermione. You took that from Sirius's house, said Harry, who was almost nose to nose with Mundungus and was breathing in an unpleasant smell of old tobacco and spirits. That had the Black Family crest on it. I know what? spluttered Mundungus, who was slowly turning purple. What did you do, go back the night he died and strip the place? snarled Harry. I know, 
Give it to me. Harry, you mustn't, shrieked Hermione as Mundungus started to turn blue. There was a bang, and Harry felt his hands fly off Mundungus's throat. Gasping and spluttering, Mundungus seized his fallen case, then, crack, he disapparated. Harry swore at the top of his voice, spinning on the spot to see where Mundungus had gone. Come back, you thieving! There's no point, Harry. Tonks had appeared out of nowhere, her mousy hair wet with sleet. Mundungus will probably be in London by now. There's no point yelling. He's nicked Sirius's stuff. Nicked it. Yes, but still, said Tonks, who seemed perfectly untroubled by this piece of information. You should get out of the cold. She watched them go through the door of the three broomsticks. The moment he was inside, Harry burst out. He was nicking Sirius's stuff. I know, Harry, but please don't shout. People are staring whispered Hermione. Go and sit down. I'll get you a drink. Harry was still fuming when Hermione returned to their table a few minutes later, holding three bottles of butterbeer. Can't the order control Mundungus? Harry demanded of the other two in a furious whisper. Can't they at least stop him stealing everything that's not fixed down when he's at headquarters? Shh, said Hermione desperately, looking around to make sure nobody was listening. There were a couple of warlocks sitting close by who were staring at Harry with great interest, and Zabini was lolling against a pillar not far away. Harry, I'd be annoyed too. I know it's your things he's stealing. Harry gagged on his butterbeer. He had momentarily forgotten that he owned Number 12 Grimald Place. Yeah, it's my stuff, he said. No wonder he wasn't pleased to see me. Well, I'm going to tell Dumbledore what's going on. He's the only one who scares Mundungus. Good idea, whispered Hermione, clearly pleased that Harry was calming down. Ron, what are you staring at? Nothing, said Ron, hastily looking away from the bar. But Harry knew he was trying to catch the eye of the curvy and attractive barmaid, Madame Rosmerta, for whom he had long nursed a soft spot. I expect nothings in the back getting more fire whiskey, said Hermione waspishly. Ron ignored this jibe, sipping his drink in what he evidently considered to be a dignified silence. Harry was thinking about Sirius and how he had hated those silver goblets anyway. Hermione drummed her fingers on the table, her eyes flickering between Ron and the bar. The moment Harry drained the last drops in his bottle, she said, Shall we call it a day and go back to school then? The other two nodded. It had not been a fun trip, and the weather was getting worse the longer they stayed. Once again, they drew their cloaks tightly around them, rearranged their scarves, pulled on their gloves, then followed Katie Bell and a friend out of the pub and back up the high street. Harry's thoughts strayed to Ginny as they trudged up the road to Hogwarts through the frozen slush. They had not met up with her, undoubtedly, thought Harry, because she and Dean were cosily closeted in Madame Puddyfoot's tea shop, that haunt of happy couples. Scowling, he bowed his head against the swirling sleet and trudged on. It was a little while before Harry became aware that the voices of Katie Bell and her friend, which were being carried back to him on the wind, had become shriller and louder. Harry squinted at their indistinct figures. The two girls were having an argument about something Katie was holding in her hand. It's nothing to do with you, Leanne, Harry heard Katie say. 
They rounded a corner in the lane, sleet coming thick and fast, blurring Harry's glasses. Just as he raised a gloved hand to wipe them, Leanne made to grab hold of the package Katie was holding. Katie tugged it back, and the package fell to the ground. At once, Katie rose into the air, not as Ron had done, suspended comically by the ankle, but gracefully, her arms outstretched as though she was about to fly. Yet there was something wrong, something eerie. Her hair was whipped around her by the fierce wind, but her eyes were closed and her face was quite empty of expression. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Leanne had all halted in their tracks, watching. Then, six feet above the ground, Katie let out a terrible scream. Her eyes flew open, but whatever she could see or whatever she was feeling was clearly causing her terrible anguish. She screamed and screamed. Leanne started to scream too and seized Katie's ankles, trying to tug her back to the ground. Harry, Ron, and Hermione rushed forward to help, but even as they grabbed Katie's legs, she fell on top of them. Harry and Ron managed to catch her, but she was writhing so much they could hardly hold her. Instead, they lowered her to the ground where she thrashed and screamed, apparently unable to recognize any of them. Harry looked around. The landscape seemed deserted. Stay there, he shouted at the others over the howling wind. I'm going for help. He began to sprint toward the school. He had never seen anyone behave as Katie had just behaved and could not think what had caused it. He hurtled around a bend in the lane and collided with what seemed to be an enormous bear on its hind legs. Hagrid, he panted, disentangling himself from the hedgerow into which he had fallen. Harry, said Hagrid, who had sleet trapped in his eyebrows and beard and was wearing his great shaggy beaver-skin coat. Just been visiting Grop. He's coming on so well you wouldn't. Hagrid, someone's hurt back there, or cursed, or something. What? said Hagrid, bending lower to hear what Harry was saying over the raging wind. Someone's been cursed, bellowed Harry. Cursed? Who's been cursed? Not Ron. Hermione? No, it's not them. It's Katie Bell. This way. Together they ran back along the lane. It took them no time to find the little group of people around Katie, who was still writhing and screaming on the ground. Ron, Hermione, and Leanne were all trying to quiet her. Get back, shouted Hagrid. Let me see her. Something's happened to her, sobbed Leanne. I don't know what. Hagrid stared at Katie for a second, then without a word bent down, scooped her into his arms, and ran off toward the castle with her. Within seconds, Katie's piercing screams had died away, and the only sound was the roar of the wind. Hermione hurried over to Katie's wailing friend and put an arm around her. It's Leanne, isn't it? The girl nodded. Did it just happen all of a sudden, or... It was when that package tore, sobbed Leanne, pointing at the now sodden brown paper package on the ground, which had split open to reveal a greenish glitter. Ron bent down, his hand outstretched, but Harry seized his arm and pulled him back. Don't touch it! He crouched down. An ornate opal necklace was visible, poking out of the paper. I've seen that before, said Harry, staring at the thing. It was on display in Borgin and Burke's, ages ago. The label said it was cursed. Katie must have touched it. 
He looked up at Leanne, who had started to shake uncontrollably. How did Katie get hold of this? Well, that's why we were arguing. She came back from the bathroom in the three broomsticks holding it, said it was a surprise for somebody at Hogwarts, and she had to deliver it. She looked all funny when she said it. Oh, no. Oh, no. I bet she'd been imperioused, and I didn't realize. Leanne shook with renewed sobs. Hermione patted her shoulder gently. She didn't say who'd given it to her, Leanne. No, she wouldn't tell me, and I said she was being stupid and not to take it up to school. But she just wouldn't listen, and, and then I tried to grab it from her, and... and... Leanne let out a wail of despair. We'd better get up to school, said Hermione, her arms still around Leanne. We'll be able to find out how she is. Come on. Harry hesitated for a moment, then pulled his scarf from around his face and, ignoring Ron's gasp, carefully covered the necklace in it and picked it up. We'll need to show this to Madame Pomfrey, he said. As they followed Hermione and Leanne up the road, Harry was thinking furiously. They had just entered the grounds when he spoke, unable to keep his thoughts to himself any longer. Malfoy knows about this necklace. It was in a case at Borgin and Burke's four years ago. I saw him having a good look at it while I was hiding from him and his dad. This is what he was buying that day when we followed him. He remembered it, and he went back for it. I... I don't know, Harry, said Ron hesitantly. Loads of people go to Borgin and Burke's, and didn't that girl say Katie got it in the girls' bathroom? She said she came back from the bathroom with it. She didn't necessarily get it in the bathroom itself. McGonagall, said Ron warningly. Harry looked up. Sure enough, Professor McGonagall was hurrying down the stone steps through swirling sleet to meet them. Hagrid says you four saw what happened to Katie Bell. Upstairs to my office at once, please. What's that you're holding, Potter? It's the thing she touched, said Harry. Good Lord, said Professor McGonagall, looking alarmed as she took the necklace from Harry. No, no, Filch, they're with me, she added hastily, as Filch came shuffling eagerly across the entrance hall, holding his secrecy sensor aloft. Take this necklace to Professor Snape at once, but be sure not to touch it. Keep it wrapped in the scarf. Harry and the others followed Professor McGonagall upstairs and into her office. The sleet-spattered windows were rattling in their frames, and the room was chilly despite the fire crackling in the grate. Professor McGonagall closed the door and swept around her desk to face Harry, Ron, Hermione, and the still-sobbing Leanne. Well, she said sharply, what happened? Haltingly, and with many pauses while she attempted to control her crying, Leanne told Professor McGonagall how Katie had gone to the bathroom in the three broomsticks and returned holding the unmarked package, how Katie had seemed a little odd, and how they had argued about the advisability of agreeing to deliver unknown objects. The argument culminating in the tussle over the parcel, which tore open. At this point, Leanne was so overcome there was no getting another word out of her. All right, said Professor McGonagall, not unkindly. Go up to the hospital wing, please, Leanne, and get Madame Pomfrey to give you something for shock. When she had left the room, Professor McGonagall turned back to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. 
What happened when Katie touched the necklace? She rose up in the air, said Harry, before either Ron or Hermione could speak, and then began to scream and collapsed. Professor, can I see Professor Dumbledore, please? The headmaster is away until Monday, Potter, said Professor McGonagall, looking surprised. Away? Harry repeated angrily. Yes, Potter, away, said Professor McGonagall tartly. But anything you have to say about this horrible business can be said to me, I'm sure. For a split second, Harry hesitated. Professor McGonagall did not invite confidences. Dumbledore, though in many ways more intimidating, still seemed less likely to scorn a theory, however wild. This was a life-and-death matter, though, and no moment to worry about being laughed at. I think Draco Malfoy gave Katie that necklace, Professor. On one side of him, Ron rubbed his nose in apparent embarrassment. On the other, Hermione shuffled her feet as though quite keen to put a bit of distance between herself and Harry. That is a very serious accusation, Potter, said Professor McGonagall after a shocked pause. Do you have any proof? No, said Harry, but... And he told her about following Malfoy to Borgin and Burks and the conversation they had overheard between him and Mr. Borgin. When he had finished speaking, Professor McGonagall looked slightly confused. Malfoy took something to Borgin and Burks for repair? No, Professor. He just wanted Borging to tell him how to mend something. He didn't have it with him. But that's not the point. The thing is that he brought something at the same time. And I think it was that necklace. You saw Malfoy leaving the shop with a similar package? No, Professor. He told Borging to keep it in the shop for him. But Harry, Hermione interrupted. Borgin asked him if he wanted to take it with him, and Malfoy said no. Because he didn't want to touch it, obviously, said Harry angrily. What he actually said was, how would I look carrying that down the street, said Hermione. Well, he would look a bit of a prat carrying a necklace, interjected Ron. Oh, Ron, said Hermione despairingly, it would be all wrapped up, so he wouldn't have to touch it and quite easy to hide inside a cloak so nobody would see it. I think whatever he reserved at Borgin and Burke's was noisy or bulky, something he knew would draw attention to him if he carried it down the street. And in any case, she pressed on loudly before Harry could interrupt, I asked Borgin about the necklace, don't you remember? When I went in to try and find out what Malfoy had asked him to keep, I saw it there, and Borgin just told me the price. He didn't say it was already sold or anything. Well, you were being really obvious. He realized what you were up to within about five seconds. Of course he wasn't going to tell you. Anyway, Malfoy could have sent off for it since... That's enough, said Professor McGonagall, as Hermione opened her mouth to retort, looking furious. Potter, I appreciate you telling me this, but we cannot point the finger of blame at Mr. Malfoy purely because he visited the shop where this necklace might have been purchased. The same is probably true of hundreds of people. That's what I said, muttered Ron. And in any case, we have put stringent security measures in place this year. I do not believe that necklace can possibly have entered this school without our knowledge. But, and what is more, said Professor McGonagall, with an air of awful finality, Mr. Malfoy was not in Hogsmeade today. Harry gaped at her, deflating. 
How do you know, Professor? Because he was doing detention with me. He has now failed to complete his transfiguration homework twice in a row. So thank you for telling me your suspicions, Potter, she said as she marched past them. But I need to go up to the hospital wing now to check on Katie Bell. Good day to you all. She held open her office door. They had no choice but to file past her without another word. Harry was angry with the other two for siding with McGonagall. Nevertheless, he felt compelled to join in once they started discussing what had happened. So who do you reckon Katie was supposed to give the necklace to? Asked Ron as they climbed the stairs to the common room. Goodness only knows, said Hermione, but whoever it was has had a narrow escape. No one could have opened that package without touching the necklace. It could have been meant for loads of people, said Harry. Dumbledore? The Death Eaters would love to get rid of him. He must be one of their top targets. Or Slughorn? Dumbledore reckons Voldemort really wanted him. And they can't be pleased that he's sided with Dumbledore. Or... Or you, said Hermione, looking troubled. Couldn't have been, said Harry. Or Katie would have just turned around in the lane and given it to me, wouldn't she? I was behind her all the way out of the three broomsticks. It would have made much more sense to deliver the parcel outside Hogwarts, what with Filch searching everyone who goes in and out. I wonder why Malfoy told her to take it into the castle. Harry, Malfoy wasn't in Hogsmeade, said Hermione, actually stamping her foot in frustration. He must have used an accomplice then, said Harry. Crab or Goyle, or come to think of it, another Death Eater. He'll have loads better cronies than Crab and Goyle now he's joined up. Ron and Hermione exchanged looks that plainly said, there's no point arguing with him. Dillygrout, said Hermione firmly as they reached the fat lady. The portrait swung open to admit them to the common room. It was quite full and smelled of damp clothing. Many people seemed to have returned from Hogsmeade early because of the bad weather. There was no buzz of fear or speculation, however. Clearly the news of Katie's fate had not yet spread. It wasn't a very slick attack, really, when you stop to think about it, said Ron, casually turfing a first year out of one of the good armchairs by the fire so that he could sit down. The curse didn't even make it into the castle. Not what you'd call foolproof. You're right, said Hermione, prodding Ron out of the chair with her foot and offering it to the first year again. It wasn't very well thought out at all. But since when has Malfoy been one of the world's great thinkers? asked Harry. Neither Ron nor Hermione answered him. Chapter 13 The Secret Riddle Katie was removed to St. Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries the following day, by which time the news that she had been cursed had spread all over the school, though the details were confused, and nobody other than Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Leanne seemed to know that Katie herself had not been the intended target. Oh, and Malfoy knows, of course, said Harry to Ron and Hermione, who continued their new policy of feigning deafness whenever Harry mentioned his Malfoy is a death eater theory. Harry had wondered whether Dumbledore would return from wherever he had been in time for Monday night's lesson. But having had no word to the contrary, he presented himself outside Dumbledore's office at eight o'clock, knocked, and was told to enter. There sat Dumbledore, looking unusually tired. 
His hand was as black and burned as ever, but he smiled when he gestured to Harry to sit down. The pensive was sitting on the desk again, casting silvery specks of light over the ceiling. You have had a busy time while I have been away, Dumbledore said. I believe you witnessed Katie's accident. Yes, sir. How is she? Still very unwell, although she was relatively lucky. She appears to have brushed the necklace with the smallest possible amount of skin. There was a tiny hole in her glove. Had she put it on, had she even held it in her ungloved hand, she would have died, perhaps instantly. Luckily, Professor Snape was able to do enough to prevent a rapid spread of the curse. Why him? asked Harry quickly. Why not Madame Pomfrey? Impertinent, said a soft voice from one of the portraits on the wall. And Phineas Nigellus Black, Sirius's great-great-grandfather, raised his head from his arms where he had appeared to be sleeping. I would not have permitted a student to question the way Hogwarts operated in my day. Yes, thank you, Phineas, said Dumbledore quellingly. Professor Snape knows much more about the dark arts than Madame Pomfrey, Harry. Anyway, the St. Mungo's staff are sending me hourly reports. And I am hopeful that Katie will make a full recovery in time. Where were you this weekend, sir? Harry asked, disregarding a strong feeling that he might be pushing his luck, a feeling apparently shared by Phineas Nigellus, who hissed softly. I would rather not say just now, said Dumbledore. However, I shall tell you in due course. You will? said Harry, startled. Yes, I expect so, said Dumbledore, withdrawing a fresh bottle of silver memories from inside his robes and uncorking it with a prod of his wand. Sir, said Harry tentatively, I met Mundungus in Hogsmeade. Ah, yes, I am already aware that Mundungus has been treating your inheritance with light-fingered contempt, said Dumbledore, frowning a little. He has gone to ground since you accosted him outside the three broomsticks. I rather think he dreads facing me. However, rest assured that he will not be making away with any more of Sirius's old possessions. That mangy old half-blood has been stealing black heirlooms, said Phineas Nigellus incensed, and he stalked out of his frame, undoubtedly to visit his portrait in number 12, Grimald Place. Professor, said Harry after a short pause, did Professor McGonagall tell you what I told her after Katie got hurt, about Draco Malfoy? She told me of your suspicions, yes, said Dumbledore. And do you? I shall take all appropriate measures to investigate anyone who might have had a hand in Katie's accident, said Dumbledore. But what concerns me now, Harry, is our lesson. Harry felt slightly resentful at this. If their lessons were so very important, why had there been such a long gap between the first and second? However, he said no more about Draco Malfoy, but watched as Dumbledore poured the fresh memories into the pensive and began swirling the stone basin once more between his long-fingered hands. You will remember, I am sure, that we left the tale of Lord Voldemort's beginnings at the point where the handsome muggle, Tom Riddle, had abandoned his witch-wife, Merope, and returned to his family home in Little Hangleton. Merope was left alone in London, expecting the baby who would one day become Lord Voldemort.
How do you know she was in London, sir? Because of the evidence of one Caractacus Burke, said Dumbledore, who, by an odd coincidence, helped found the very shop whence came the necklace we have just been discussing. He swilled the contents of the pensive as Harry had seen him swill them before, much as a gold prospector sifts for gold. Up, out of the swirling silvery mass rose a little old man, revolving slowly in the pensive, silver as a ghost, but much more solid, with a thatch of hair that completely covered his eyes. Yes, we acquired it in curious circumstances. It was brought in by a young witch just before Christmas, oh, many years ago now. She said she needed the gold badly. Well, that much was obvious. Covered in rags and pretty far along. Going to have a baby, see? She said the locket had been Slytherin's. Well, we hear that sort of story all the time. Oh, this was Merlin's, this was his favourite teapot. But when I looked at it, it had his mark all right, and a few simple spells were enough to tell me the truth. Of course, that made it near enough priceless. She didn't seem to have any idea how much it was worth. Happy to get ten galleons for it. Best bargain we ever made. Dumbledore gave the pensive an extra vigorous shake, and Caractacus Burke descended back into the swirling mass of memory from whence he had come. He only gave her ten galleons? said Harry indignantly. Caractacus Burke was not famed for his generosity, said Dumbledore. So we know that near the end of her pregnancy, Merope was alone in London and in desperate need of gold, desperate enough to sell her one and only valuable possession the locket that was one of Marvolo's treasured family heirlooms. But she could do magic, said Harry impatiently. She could have got food and everything for herself by magic, couldn't she? Ah, said Dumbledore, perhaps she could. But it is my belief, I am guessing again, but I am sure I am right, that when her husband abandoned her, Marupi stopped using magic. I do not think that she wanted to be a witch any longer. Of course, it is also possible that her unrequited love and the attendant despair sapped her of her powers. That can happen. In any case, as you are about to see, Merope refused to raise her wand even to save her own life. She wouldn't even stay alive for her son? Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. Could you possibly be feeling sorry for Lord Voldemort? No, said Harry quickly. But she had a choice, didn't she? Not like my mother. Your mother had a choice, too, said Dumbledore gently. Yes, Marope Riddle chose death in spite of a son who needed her. But do not judge her too harshly, Harry. She was greatly weakened by long-suffering, and she never had your mother's courage. And now, if you will stand... Where are we going? Harry asked as Dumbledore joined him at the front of the desk. This time, said Dumbledore, we are going to enter my memory. I think you will find it both rich in detail and satisfyingly accurate. After you, Harry. Harry bent over the pensive. His face broke the cool surface of the memory, and then he was falling through darkness again. Seconds later, his feet hit firm ground. He opened his eyes and found that he and Dumbledore were standing in a bustling, old-fashioned London street. There I am, said Dumbledore brightly, pointing ahead of them to a tall figure crossing the road in front of a horse-drawn milk cart. 
This younger Albus Dumbledore's long hair and beard were auburn. Having reached their side of the street, he strode off along the pavement, drawing many curious glances due to the flamboyantly cut suit of plum velvet that he was wearing. Nice suit, sir, said Harry before he could stop himself. But Dumbledore merely chuckled as they followed his younger self a short distance, finally passing through a set of iron gates into a bare courtyard that fronted a rather grim square building surrounded by high railings. He mounted the few steps leading to the front door and knocked once. After a moment or two, the door was opened by a scruffy girl wearing an apron. Good afternoon. I have an appointment with a Mrs. Cole, who, I believe, is the matron here. Oh, said the bewildered-looking girl, taking in Dumbledore's eccentric appearance. Um, Chasimo, Mrs. Cole! She bellowed over her shoulder. Harry heard a distant voice shouting something in response. The girl turned back to Dumbledore. Come in, she's on her way. Dumbledore stepped into a hallway tiled in black and white. The whole place was shabby but spotlessly clean. Harry and the older Dumbledore followed. Before the front door had closed behind them, a skinny, harassed-looking woman came scurrying toward them. She had a sharp-featured face that appeared more anxious than unkind, and she was talking over her shoulder to another aproned helper as she walked toward Dumbledore. And take the iodine upstairs to Martha. Billy Subs has been picking his scabs, and Eric Wall is oozing all over his sheets. Oh, chicken pox on top of everything else, she said to nobody in particular. And then her eyes fell upon Dumbledore, and she stopped dead in her tracks looking as astonished as if a giraffe had just crossed her threshold. Good afternoon, said Dumbledore, holding out his hand. Mrs. Cole simply gaped. My name is Albus Dumbledore. I sent you a letter requesting an appointment, and you very kindly invited me here today. Mrs. Cole blinked. Apparently deciding that Dumbledore was not a hallucination, she said feebly, Oh, yes. Well, well then... You'd better come into my room, yes. She led Dumbledore into a small room that seemed part sitting room, part office. It was as shabby as the hallway, and the furniture was old and mismatched. She invited Dumbledore to sit on a rickety chair and seated herself behind a cluttered desk, eyeing him nervously. I am here, as I told you in my letter, to discuss Tom Riddle and arrangements for his future, said Dumbledore. Are you family? asked Mrs. Cole. No, I am a teacher, said Dumbledore. I have come to offer Tom a place at my school. What school's this, then? It is called Hogwarts, said Dumbledore. And how come you're interested in Tom? We believe he has qualities we are looking for. You mean he's won a scholarship? How can he have done? He's never been entered for one. Well, his name has been down for our school since birth. Who registered him? His parents? There was no doubt that Mrs. Cole was an inconveniently sharp woman. Apparently Dumbledore thought so too, for Harry now saw him slip his wand out of the pocket of his velvet suit, at the same time picking up a piece of perfectly blank paper from Mrs. Cole's desktop. Here, said Dumbledore, waving his wand once as he passed her the piece of paper. I think this will make everything clear. Mrs. Cole's eyes slid out of focus and back again as she gazed intently at the blank paper for a moment. 
That seems perfectly in order, she said placidly, handing it back. Then her eyes fell upon a bottle of gin and two glasses that had certainly not been present a few seconds before. Uh, may I offer you a glass of gin? she said in an extra refined voice. Thank you very much, said Dumbledore, beaming. It soon became clear that Mrs. Cole was no novice when it came to gin drinking. Pouring both of them a generous measure, she drained her own glass in one gulp. Smacking her lips frankly, she smiled at Dumbledore for the first time, and he didn't hesitate to press his advantage. I was wondering whether you could tell me anything of Tom Riddle's history. I think he was born here in the orphanage? That's right, said Mrs. Cole, helping herself to more gin. I remember it clear as anything, because I just started here myself. New Year's Eve, and bitter cold snowing, you know. Nasty night. And this girl, not much older than I was myself at the time, came staggering up the front steps. Well, she wasn't the first. We took her in, and she had the baby within the hour, and she was dead in another hour. Mrs. Cole nodded impressively and took another generous gulp of gin. Did she say anything before she died? asked Dumbledore. Anything about the boy's father, for instance? Now, as it happens, she did, said Mrs. Cole, who seemed to be rather enjoying herself now, with the gin in her hand and an eager audience for her story. I remember she said to me, I hope he looks like his papa. And I won't lie, she was right to hope it, because she was no beauty. And then she told me he was to be named Tom for his father, and Marvolo for her father. Yes, I know, a funny name, isn't it? We wondered whether she came from a circus, and she said the boy's surname was to be Riddle, and she died soon after that without another word. Well, we named him just as she'd said. It seemed so important to the poor girl. But no Tom, nor Marvolo, nor any kind of riddle ever came looking for him, nor any family at all. So he stayed in the orphanage, and he's been here ever since. Mrs. Cole helped herself almost absent-mindedly to another healthy measure of gin. Two pink spots had appeared high on her cheekbones. Then she said, He's a funny boy. Yes, said Dumbledore. I thought he might be. He was a funny baby, too. He hardly ever cried, you know, and then when he got a little older, he was odd. Odd in what way? asked Dumbledore gently. Well, he... But Mrs. Cole pulled up short and there was nothing blurry or vague about the inquisitorial glance she shot Dumbledore over her gin glass. He's definitely got a place at your school, you say? Definitely, said Dumbledore. And nothing I say can change that. Nothing, said Dumbledore. You'll be taking him away, whatever? Whatever, repeated Dumbledore gravely. She squinted at him as though deciding whether or not to trust him. Apparently, she decided she could, because she said in a sudden rush, He scares the other children. You mean he is a bully? asked Dumbledore. I think he must be, 
said Mrs. Cole, frowning slightly. But it's very hard to catch him at it. There have been incidents. Nasty things. Dumbledore did not press her, though Harry could tell that he was interested. She took yet another gulp of gin, and her rosy cheeks grew rosier still. Billy Stubbs's rabbit. Well, Tom said he didn't do it, and I don't see how he could have done, but even so, it didn't hang itself from the rafters, did it? I shouldn't think so, no, said Dumbledore quietly. But I'm triggered if I know how he got up there to do it. All I know is he and Billy had argued the day before. And then... Mrs. Cole took another swig of gin, slopping a little over her chin this time. On the summer outing. We take them out, you know, once a year to the countryside or to the seaside. Well, Amy Benson and Dennis Bishop were never quite right afterwards. And all we ever got out of them was that they'd gone into a cave with Tom Riddle. He swore they'd just gone exploring, but something happened in there, I'm sure of it. And, well, there have been a lot of things, funny things. She looked around at Dumbledore again, and though her cheeks were flushed, her gaze was steady. I don't think. Many people will be sorry to see the back of him. You understand, I'm sure, that we will not be keeping him permanently, said Dumbledore. He will have to return here, at the very least, every summer. Oh, well, that's better than a whack on the nose with a rusty poker, said Mrs. Cole with a slight hiccup. She got to her feet, and Harry was impressed to see that she was quite steady even though two-thirds of the gin was now gone. I suppose you'd like to see him. Very much, said Dumbledore, rising too. She led him out of her office and up the stone stairs, calling out instructions and admonitions to helpers and children as she passed. The orphans, Harry saw, were all wearing the same kind of greyish tunic. They looked reasonably well cared for, but there was no denying that this was a grim place in which to grow up. Here we are, said Mrs. Cole, as they turned off the second landing and stopped outside the first door in a long corridor. She knocked twice and entered. Tom, you've got a visitor. This is Mr. Dumburton, sorry, Dunderbore. He's come to tell you. Well, I'll let him do it. Harry and the two Dumbledores entered the room, and Mrs. Cole closed the door on them. It was a small, bare room with nothing in it except an old wardrobe and an iron bedstead. A boy was sitting on top of the grey blankets, his legs stretched out in front of him, holding a book. There was no trace of the gaunts in Tom Riddle's face. Merope had got her dying wish. He was his handsome father in miniature, tall for eleven years old dark-haired and pale. His eyes narrowed slightly as he took in Dumbledore's eccentric appearance. There was a moment's silence. How do you do, Tom? said Dumbledore, walking forward and holding out his hand. The boy hesitated, then took it, and they shook hands. Dumbledore drew up the hard wooden chair beside Riddle, so that the pair of them looked rather like a hospital patient and visitor. I am... 
Professor Dumbledore. Professor? repeated Riddle. He looked wary. Is that like Doctor? What are you here for? Did she get you in to have a look at me? He was pointing at the door through which Mrs. Cole had just left. No, no, said Dumbledore, smiling. I don't believe you, said Riddle. She wants me looked at, doesn't she? Tell the truth! He spoke the last three words with a ringing force that was almost shocking. It was a command, and it sounded as though he had given it many times before. His eyes had widened, and he was glaring at Dumbledore, who made no response except to continue smiling pleasantly. After a few seconds, Riddle stopped glaring, though he looked, if anything, warier still. Who are you? I have told you, my name is Professor Dumbledore, and I work at a school called Hogwarts. I have come to offer you a place at my school, your new school, if you would like to come. Riddle's reaction to this was most surprising. He leapt from the bed and backed away from Dumbledore, looking furious. You can't kid me. The asylum, that's where you're from, isn't it? Professor, yes, of course. Well, I'm not going, see? That old cat's the one who should be in the asylum. I never did anything to little Amy Benson or Dennis Bishop, and you can ask them, they'll tell you. I am not from the asylum, said Dumbledore patiently. I am a teacher, and if you will sit down calmly, I shall tell you about Hogwarts. Of course, if you would rather not come to the school, nobody will force you. I'd like to see them try, sneered Riddle. Hogwarts, Dumbledore went on as though he had not heard Riddle's last words, is a school for people with special abilities. I'm not mad. I know that you're not mad. Hogwarts is not a school for mad people. It is a school of magic. There was silence. Riddle had frozen, his face expressionless, but his eyes were flickering back and forth between each of Dumbledore's, as though trying to catch one of them lying. Magic, he repeated in a whisper. That's right, said Dumbledore. It's, it's magic, what I can do. What is it that you can do? All sorts, breathed Riddle. A flush of excitement was rising up his neck into his hollow cheeks. He looked fevered. I can make things move without touching them. I can make animals do what I want them to do without training them. I can make bad things happen to people who annoy me. I can make them hurt if I want to. His legs were trembling. He stumbled forward and sat down on the bed again, staring at his hands, his head bowed as though in prayer. I knew I was different, he whispered to his own quivering fingers. I knew I was special, always. I knew there was something. Well, you were quite right, said Dumbledore who was no longer smiling but watching Riddle intently. You are a wizard. Riddle lifted his head. His face was transfigured. There was a wild happiness upon it, yet for some reason it did not make him better looking. On the contrary, his finely carved features seemed somehow rougher, his expression almost bestial. Are you a wizard, too? Yes, I am. Prove it, said Riddle at once, in the same commanding tone he had used when he had said, Tell the truth. Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. 
If, as I take it, you are accepting your place at Hogwarts, of course I am. Then you will address me as Professor or Sir. Riddle's expression hardened for the most fleeting moment before he said in an unrecognizably polite voice, I'm sorry, sir. I meant, please, Professor, could you show me? Harry was sure that Dumbledore was going to refuse, that he would tell Riddle there would be plenty of time for practical demonstrations at Hogwarts, that they were currently in a building full of muggles and must therefore be cautious. To his great surprise, however, Dumbledore drew his wand from an inside pocket of his suit jacket, pointed it at the shabby wardrobe in the corner, and gave the wand a casual flick. The wardrobe burst into flames. Riddle jumped to his feet. Harry could hardly blame him for howling in shock and rage. All his worldly possessions must be in there. But even as Riddle rounded on Dumbledore, the flames vanished, leaving the wardrobe completely undamaged. Riddle stared from the wardrobe to Dumbledore. Then, his expression greedy, he pointed at the wand. Where can I get one of them? All in good time, said Dumbledore. I think there is something trying to get out of your wardrobe. And sure enough, a faint rattling could be heard from inside it. For the first time, Riddle looked frightened. Open the door, said Dumbledore. Riddle hesitated, then crossed the room and threw open the wardrobe door. On the topmost shelf, above a rail of threadbare clothes, a small cardboard box was shaking and rattling as though there were several frantic mice trapped inside it. Take it out, said Dumbledore. Riddle took down the quaking box. He looked unnerved. Is there anything in that box that you ought not to have? asked Dumbledore. Riddle threw Dumbledore a long, clear, calculating look. Yes, I suppose so, sir, he said finally in an expressionless voice. Open it, said Dumbledore. Riddle took off the lid and tipped the contents onto his bed without looking at them. Harry, who had expected something much more exciting, saw a mess of small everyday objects, a yo-yo, a silver thimble, and a tarnished mouth organ among them. Once free of the box, they stopped quivering and lay quite still upon the thin blankets. You will return them to their owners with your apologies, said Dumbledore calmly, putting his wand back into his jacket. I shall know whether it has been done and be warned. Thieving is not tolerated at Hogwarts. Riddle did not look remotely abashed. He was still staring coldly and appraisingly at Dumbledore. At last he said in a colorless voice, Yes, sir. At Hogwarts, Dumbledore went on, we teach you not only to use magic, but to control it. You have, inadvertently, I am sure, been using your powers in a way that is neither taught nor tolerated at our school. You are not the first, nor will you be the last, to allow your magic to run away with you. But you should know that Hogwarts can expel students, and the Ministry of Magic, yes, there is a ministry, will punish lawbreakers still more severely. All new wizards must accept that. In entering our world, they abide by our laws. Yes, sir, said Riddle again. It was impossible to tell what he was thinking. His face remained quite blank as he put the little cache of stolen objects back into the cardboard box. When he had finished, he turned to Dumbledore and said baldly, 
I haven't got any money. That is easily remedied, said Dumbledore, drawing a leather money pouch from his pocket. There is a fund at Hogwarts for those who require assistance to buy books and robes. You might have to buy some of your spell books and so on second hand, but where do you buy spell books? interrupted Riddle, who had taken the heavy money bag without thanking Dumbledore, and was now examining a fat gold galleon. In Diagon Alley, said Dumbledore. I have your lists of books and school equipment with me. I can help you find everything. You're coming with me? asked Riddle, looking up. Certainly, if you... I don't need you, said Riddle. I'm used to doing things for myself. I go round London on my own all the time. How do you get to this diagonally, sir? He added, catching Dumbledore's eye. Harry thought that Dumbledore would insist upon accompanying Riddle, but once again he was surprised. Dumbledore handed Riddle the envelope containing his list of equipment, and after telling Riddle exactly how to get to the leaky cauldron from the orphanage, he said, You will be able to see it, although muggles around you, non-magical people, that is, will not. Ask for Tom the barman. Easy enough to remember, as he shares your name. Riddle gave an irritable twitch, as though trying to displace an irksome fly. You dislike the name, Tom? There are a lot of Toms, muttered Riddle. Then, as though he could not suppress the question, as though it burst from him in spite of himself, he asked, Was my father a wizard? He was called Tom Riddle, too, they've told me. I'm afraid I don't know, said Dumbledore, his voice gentle. My mother can't have been magic or she wouldn't have died, said Riddle, more to himself than Dumbledore. It must have been him. So, when I've got all my stuff, when do I come to this Hogwarts? All the details are on the second piece of parchment in your envelope, said Dumbledore. You will leave from King's Cross Station on the 1st of September. There is a train ticket in there, too. Riddle nodded. Dumbledore got to his feet and held out his hand again. Taking it, Riddle said, I can speak to snakes. I found out when we've been to the country on trips. They find me. They whisper to me. Is that normal for a wizard? Harry could tell that he had withheld mention of this stranger's power until that moment, determined to impress. It is... Unusual, said Dumbledore, after a moment's hesitation, but not unheard of. His tone was casual, but his eyes moved curiously over Riddle's face. They stood for a moment, man and boy, staring at each other. Then the handshake was broken. Dumbledore was at the door. Goodbye, Tom. I shall see you at Hogwarts. I think that will do, said the white-haired Dumbledore at Harry's side and seconds later they were soaring weightlessly through darkness once more, before landing squarely in the present-day office. Sit down, said Dumbledore, landing beside Harry. Harry obeyed, his mind still full of what he had just seen. He believed it much quicker than I did. I mean, when you told him he was a wizard, said Harry. I didn't believe Hagrid at first when he told me. Yes, Riddle was perfectly ready to believe that he was, to use his word, special, said Dumbledore. Did you know, then? asked Harry. Did I know that I had just met the most dangerous dark wizard of all time? 
said Dumbledore. No, I had no idea that he was to grow up to be what he is. However, I was certainly intrigued by him. I returned to Hogwarts intending to keep an eye upon him, something I should have done in any case given that he was alone and friendless, but which already I felt I ought to do for others' sake as much as his. His powers, as you heard, were surprisingly well-developed for such a young wizard, and, most interestingly and ominously of all, he had already discovered that he had some measure of control over them and begun to use them consciously. And, as you saw, they were not the random experiments typical of young wizards. He was already using magic against other people, to frighten, to punish, to control. The little stories of the strangled rabbit and the young boy and girl he lured into a cave were most suggestive. I can make them hurt if I want to. And he was a parcel mouth, interjected Harry. Yes, indeed. A rare ability, and one supposedly connected with the dark arts. Although, as we know, there are parcel mouths among the great and the good, too. In fact, his ability to speak to serpents did not make me nearly as uneasy as his obvious instincts for cruelty, secrecy, and domination. Time is making fools of us again, said Dumbledore, indicating the dark sky beyond the windows. But before we part, I want to draw your attention to certain features of the scene we have just witnessed, for they have a great bearing on the matters we shall be discussing in future meetings. Firstly, I hope you noticed Riddle's reaction when I mentioned that another shared his first name, Tom. Harry nodded. There, he showed his contempt for anything that tied him to other people, anything that made him ordinary. Even then he wished to be different, separate, notorious. He shed his name, as you know, within a few short years of that conversation and created the mask of Lord Voldemort, behind which he has been hidden for so long. I trust that you also noticed that Tom Riddle was already highly self-sufficient, secretive, and apparently friendless. He did not want help or companionship on his trip to Diagon Alley. He preferred to operate alone. The adult, Voldemort, is the same. You will hear many of his Death Eaters claiming that they are in his confidence, that they alone are close to him, even understand him. They are deluded. Lord Voldemort has never had a friend, nor do I believe that he has ever wanted one. And, lastly, I hope you are not too sleepy to pay attention to this, Harry. The young Tom Riddle liked to collect trophies. You saw the box of stolen articles he had hidden in his room. These were taken from victims of his bullying behavior, souvenirs, if you will, of particularly unpleasant bits of magic. Bear in mind this magpie-like tendency, for this particularly will be important later. And now, it really is time for bed. Harry got to his feet. As he walked across the room, his eyes fell upon the little table on which Marvolo Gaunt's ring had rested last time, but the ring was no longer there. Yes, Harry, said Dumbledore, for Harry had come to a halt. The ring's gone, said Harry, looking around. But I thought you might have the mouth organ, or something. Dumbledore beamed at him, peering over the top of his half-moon spectacles. Very astute, Harry. But the mouth organ was only ever a mouth organ. 
And on that enigmatic note, he waved to Harry, who understood himself to be dismissed. Chapter 14 Felix Felicis Harry had herbology first thing the following morning. He had been unable to tell Ron and Hermione about his lesson with Dumbledore over breakfast for fear of being overheard, but he filled them in as they walked across the vegetable patch toward the greenhouses. The weekend's brutal wind had died out at last, the weird mist had returned, and it took them a little longer than usual to find the correct greenhouse. Wow, scary thought. The boy, you know who, said Ron quietly, as they took their places around one of the gnarled snargaluff stumps that formed this term's project and began pulling on their protective gloves. But I still don't get why Dumbledore's showing you all this. I mean, it's really interesting and everything, but what's the point? Dunno, said Harry, inserting a gum shield. But he says it's all important and it'll help me survive. I think it's fascinating, said Hermione earnestly. It makes absolute sense to know as much about Voldemort as possible. How else will you find out his weaknesses? So how was Slughorn's latest party? Harry asked her thickly through the gum shield. Oh, it was quite fun, really, said Hermione, now putting on protective goggles. I mean, he drones on about famous ex-pupils a bit, and he absolutely fawns on McLagan because he's so well-connected, but he gave us some really nice food and he introduced us to Gwenog Jones. Gwenog Jones, said Ron, his eyes widening under his own goggles. The Gwenog Jones? Captain of the Holyhead Harpies? That's right, said Hermione. Personally, I thought she was a bit full of herself, but... Quite enough chat over here, said Professor Sprout briskly, bustling over and looking stern. You're lagging behind. Everybody else has started and Neville's already got his first pod. They looked around. Sure enough, there sat Neville with a bloody lip and several nasty scratches along the side of his face, but clutching an unpleasantly pulsating green object about the size of a grapefruit. Okay, Professor, we're starting now said Ron, adding quietly when she had turned away again. Should have used Muffliato, Harry. No, we shouldn't, said Hermione at once, looking, as she always did, intensely cross at the thought of the half-blood prince and his spells. Well, come on, we'd better get going. She gave the other two an apprehensive look. They all took deep breaths and then dived at the gnarled stump between them. It sprang to life at once. Long, prickly, bramble-like vines flew out of the top and whipped through the air. One tangled itself in Hermione's hair, and Ron beat it back with a pair of secateurs. Harry succeeded in trapping a couple of vines and knotting them together. A hole opened in the middle of all the tentacle-like branches. Hermione plunged her arm bravely into this hole, which closed like a trap around her elbow. Harry and Ron tugged and wrenched at the vines, forcing the hole to open again, and Hermione snatched her arm free, clutching in her fingers a pod just like Neville's. At once, the prickly vines shot back inside, and the gnarled stump sat there, looking like an innocently dead lump of wood. You know, I don't think I'll be having any of these in my garden when I've got my own place, said Ron, pushing his goggles up onto his forehead and wiping sweat from his face. Pass me a ball said Hermione, holding the pulsating pod at arm's length. Harry handed one over, and she dropped the pod into it with a look of disgust on her face. Don't be squeamish. Squeeze it out. They're best when they're fresh, called Professor Sprout. Anyway, 
said Hermione, continuing their interrupted conversation as though a lump of wood had not just attacked them. Slughorn's going to have a Christmas party, Harry, and there's no way you'll be able to wriggle out of this one because he actually asked me to check your free evenings so he could be sure to have it on a night you can come. Harry groaned. Meanwhile, Ron, who was attempting to burst the pod in the bowl by putting both hands on it, standing up and squashing it as hard as he could, said angrily, And this is another party just for Slughorn's favorites, is it? Just for the Slug Club, yes, said Hermione. The pod flew out from under Ron's fingers and hit the greenhouse glass, rebounding onto the back of Professor Sprout's head and knocking off her old patched hat. Harry went to retrieve the pod. When he got back, Hermione was saying, Look, I didn't make up the name Slug Club. Slug Club, repeated Ron with a sneer worthy of Malfoy. It's pathetic. Well, I hope you enjoy your party. Why don't you try hooking up with McLagan? Then Slughorn can make you king and queen, Slug. We're allowed to bring guests, said Hermione, who for some reason had turned a bright boiling scarlet. And I was going to ask you to come. But if you think it's that stupid, then I won't bother. Harry suddenly wished the pod had flown a little farther so that he need not have been sitting here with a pair of them. Unnoticed by either, he seized the bowl that contained the pod and began to try and open it by the noisiest and most energetic means he could think of. Unfortunately, he could still hear every word of their conversation. You were going to ask me? asked Ron in a completely different voice. Yes, said Hermione angrily. But obviously, if you'd rather I hooked up with McLagan. There was a pause while Harry continued to pound the resilient pod with a trowel. No, I wouldn't, said Ron in a very quiet voice. Harry missed the pod, hit the bowl, and shattered it. Ripero, he said hastily, poking the pieces with his wand, and the bowl sprang back together again. The crash, however, appeared to have awoken Ron and Hermione to Harry's presence. Hermione looked flustered and immediately started fussing about for her copy of Flesh-Eating Trees of the World to find out the correct way to juice Snargaluff pods. Ron, on the other hand, looked sheepish, but also rather pleased with himself. And that over, Harry, said Hermione hurriedly. It says we're supposed to puncture them with something sharp. Harry passed to the pod in the bowl. He and Ron both snapped their goggles back over their eyes and dived once more for the stump. It was not as though he was really surprised, thought Harry, as he wrestled with a thorny vine intent upon throttling him. He had had an inkling that this might happen sooner or later, but he was not sure how he felt about it. He and Cho were now too embarrassed to look at each other, let alone talk to each other. What if Ron and Hermione started going out together, then split up? Could their friendship survive it? Harry remembered the few weeks when they had not been talking to each other in the third year. He had not enjoyed trying to bridge the distance between them. And then, what if they didn't split up? What if they became like Bill and Fleur, and it became excruciatingly embarrassing to be in their presence, so that he was shut out for good? Gotcha! yelled Ron, pulling a second pod from the stump, just as Hermione managed to burst the first one open, so that the bowl was full of tubers wriggling like pale green worms. The rest of the lesson passed without further mention of Slughorn's party. Although Harry watched his two friends more closely over the next few days, Ron and Hermione did not seem any different, except that they were a little politer to each other than usual. 
Harry supposed he would just have to wait to see what happened under the influence of butterbeer in Slughorn's dimly lit room on the night of the party. In the meantime, however, he had more pressing worries. Katie Bell was still in St. Mungo's Hospital with no prospect of leaving, which meant that the promising Gryffindor team Harry had been training so carefully since September was one chase short. He kept putting off replacing Katie in the hope that she would return, but their opening match against Slytherin was looming, and he finally had to accept that she would not be back in time to play. Harry did not think he could stand another full-house tryout. With a sinking feeling that had little to do with Quidditch, he cornered Dean Thomas after Transfiguration one day. Most of the class had already left, although several twittering yellow birds were still zooming around the room, all of Hermione's creation. Nobody else had succeeded in conjuring so much as a feather from thin air. Are you still interested in playing Chaser? What? Yeah, of course, said Dean excitedly. Over Dean's shoulder, Harry saw Seamus Finnegan slamming his books into his bag, looking sour. One of the reasons why Harry would have preferred not to have to ask Dean to play was that he knew Seamus would not like it. On the other hand, he had to do what was best for the team, and Dean had outflown Seamus at the tryouts. Well then, you're in, said Harry. There's a practice tonight, seven o'clock. Right, said Dean. Cheers, Harry. Blimey, I can't wait to tell Jimmy. He sprinted out of the room, leaving Harry and Seamus alone together. An uncomfortable moment made no easier when a bird dropping landed on Seamus's head as one of Hermione's canaries whizzed over them. Seamus was not the only person disgruntled by the choice of Katie's substitute. There was much muttering in the common room about the fact that Harry had now chosen two of his classmates for the team. As Harry had endured much worse mutterings than this in his school career, he was not particularly bothered. But, all the same, the pressure was increasing to provide a win in the upcoming match against Slytherin. If Gryffindor won, Harry knew that the whole house would forget that they had criticized him and swear that they had always known it was a great team. If they lost, well, Harry thought wryly, he had still endured worse mutterings. Harry had no reason to regret his choice once he saw Dean fly that evening. He worked well with Ginny and Demelza. The beaters, Peaks, and Coot were getting better all the time. The only problem was Ron. Harry had known all along that Ron was an inconsistent player who suffered from nerves and a lack of confidence, and unfortunately the looming prospect of the opening game of the season seemed to have brought out all his old insecurities. After letting in half a dozen goals, most of them scored by Ginny, his technique became wilder and wilder until he finally punched an oncoming Demelza Robbins in the mouth. It was an accident, I'm sorry, Demelza, really, sorry, Ron shouted after her as she zigzagged back to the ground, dripping blood everywhere. I just panicked, Ginny said angrily, landing next to Demelza and examining her fat lip. You prat, Ron, look at the state of her. I can fix that, said Harry, landing beside the two girls, pointing his wand at Demelza's mouth and saying, A pisky. And Ginny, don't call Ron a prat. You're not the captain of this team. Well, you seem too busy to call him a prat, and I thought someone should. Harry forced himself not to laugh. In the air, everyone, let's go. Overall, it was one of the worst practices they had had all term, though Harry did not feel that honesty was the best policy when they were this close to the match. Good work, everyone. I think we'll flatten Slytherin, 
he said bracingly, and the chasers and beaters left the changing room looking reasonably happy with themselves. I played like a sack of dragon dung, said Ron in a hollow voice when the door had swung shut behind Ginny. No, you didn't, said Harry firmly. You're the best keeper I tried out, Ron. Your only problem is nerves. He kept up a relentless flow of encouragement all the way back to the castle, and by the time they reached the second floor, Ron was looking marginally more cheerful. When Harry pushed open the tapestry to take their usual shortcut up to Gryffindor Tower, however, they found themselves looking at Dean and Ginny, who were locked in a close embrace and kissing fiercely as though glued together. It was as though something large and scaly erupted into life in Harry's stomach, clawing at his insides. Hot blood seemed to flood his brain so that all thought was extinguished, replaced by a savage urge to jinx Dean into a jelly. Wrestling with this sudden madness, he heard Ron's voice as though from a great distance away. Oi! Dean and Ginny broke apart and looked around. What? said Ginny. I don't want to find my own sister snogging people in public. This was a deserted corridor till you came butting in, said Ginny. Dean was looking embarrassed. He gave Harry a shifty grin, but Harry did not return, as the newborn monster inside him was roaring for Dean's instant dismissal from the team. Uh, come on, Ginny, said Dean. Let's go back to the common room. You go, said Ginny. I want a word with my dear brother. Dean left, looking as though he was not sorry to depart the scene. Right, said Ginny, tossing her long red hair out of her face and glaring at Ron. Let's get this straight once and for all. It is none of your business who I go out with or what I do with them, Ron. Yeah, it is, said Ron, just as angrily. Do you think I want people saying my sister's a... A what? shouted Ginny, drawing her wand. A what? Exactly. He doesn't mean anything, Ginny, said Harry automatically, though the monster was roaring its approval of Ron's words. Oh, yes, he does, she said, flaring up at Harry. Just because he's never snogged anyone in his life, just because the best kiss he's ever had is from our Auntie Muriel. Shut your mouth, bellowed Ron, bypassing red and turning maroon. No, I will not, yelled Ginny beside herself. I've seen you with phlegm, hoping she'll kiss you on the cheek every time you see her. It's pathetic. If you went out and got a bit of snogging done yourself, you wouldn't mind so much that everyone else does it. Ron had pulled out his wand, too. Harry stepped swiftly between them. You don't know what you're talking about, Ron roared, trying to get a clear shot at Ginny around Harry, who was now standing in front of her with his arms outstretched. Just because I don't do it in public, Ginny screamed with derisive laughter, trying to push Harry out of the way. Been kissing Pigwidgeen, have you? Or have you got a picture of Auntie Muriel stashed under your pillow? You! A streak of orange light flew under Harry's left arm and missed Ginny by inches. Harry pushed Ron up against the wall. Don't be stupid! Harry's snug Cho Chang! shouted Ginny, who sounded close to tears now. And Hermione's snug Victor Crumb! It's only you who acts like it's something disgusting, Ron, and that's because you've got about as much experience as a twelve-year-old. And with that, she stormed away. Harry quickly let go of Ron. The look on his face was murderous. They both stood there, breathing heavily, until Mrs. Norris, Filch's cat, appeared around the corner, which broke the tension.
Come on, said Harry, as the sound of Filch's shuffling feet reached their ears. They hurried up the stairs and along a seventh-floor corridor. Oi, out of the way, Ron barked at a small girl who jumped in fright and dropped a bottle of toad spawn. Harry hardly noticed the sound of shattering glass. He felt disoriented, dizzy. Being struck by a lightning bolt must be something like this. It's just because she's Ron's sister, he told himself. You just didn't like seeing her kissing Dean, because she's Ron's sister. But unbidden into his mind came an image of that same deserted corridor, with himself kissing Ginny instead. The monster in his chest purred. But then he saw Ron ripping open the tapestry curtain and drawing his wand on Harry, shouting things like, Betrayal of trust, supposed to be my friend. Do you think Hermione did snog crumb? Ron asked abruptly as they approached the fat lady. Harry gave a guilty start and wrenched his imagination away from a corridor in which no Ron intruded, in which he and Ginny were quite alone. What? he said confusedly. Oh, uh... The honest answer was yes, but he did not want to give it. However, Ron seemed to gather the worst from the look on Harry's face. Dilly Grout, he said darkly to the fat lady, and they climbed through the portrait hole into the common room. Neither of them mentioned Ginny or Hermione again. Indeed, they barely spoke to each other that evening and got into bed in silence, each absorbed in his own thoughts. Harry lay awake for a long time, looking up at the canopy of his four-poster and trying to convince himself that his feelings for Ginny were entirely elder brotherly. They had lived, had they not, like brother and sister all summer, playing Quidditch, teasing Ron, and having a laugh about Bill and Flem. He had known Ginny for years now. It was natural that he should feel protective, natural that he should want to look out for her. Want to rip Dean limb from limb for kissing her? No, he would have to control that particular brotherly feeling. Ron gave a great grunting snore. She's Ron's sister, Harry told himself firmly. Ron's sister! She's out of bounds! He would not risk his friendship with Ron for anything. He punched his pillow into a more comfortable shape and waited for sleep to come, trying his utmost not to allow his thoughts to stray anywhere near Ginny. Harry awoke next morning feeling slightly dazed and confused by a series of dreams in which Ron had chased him with a beater's bat. But by midday, he would have happily exchanged the dream Ron for the real one, who was not only cold-shouldering Ginny and Dean, but also treating a hurt and bewildered Hermione with an icy, sneering indifference. What was more, Ron seemed to have become, overnight, as touchy and ready to lash out as the average blast-ended scroot. Harry spent the day attempting to keep the peace between Ron and Hermione with no success. Finally, Hermione departed for bed in high dudgeon, and Ron stalked off to the boys' dormitory after swearing angrily at several frightened first years for looking at him. To Harry's dismay, Ron's new aggression did not wear off over the next few days. Worse still, it coincided with an even deeper dip in his keeping skills, which made him still more aggressive so that during the final Quidditch practice before Saturday's match, he failed to save every single goal the chasers aimed at him, but bellowed at everybody so much that he reduced Demelza Robbins to tears. You shut up and leave her alone, shouted Peaks, who was about two-thirds Ron's height, though admittedly carrying a heavy bat. Enough, 
bellowed Harry, who had seen Ginny glowering in Ron's direction and, remembering her reputation as an accomplished caster of the bat-bogey hex, soared over to intervene before things got out of hand. Peaks, go and pack up the bludgers. Demelza, pull yourself together. You played really well today. Ron. He waited until the rest of the team were out of earshot before saying it. You're my best mate, but carry on treating the rest of them like this, and I'm going to kick you off the team. He really thought for a moment that Ron might hit him, but then something much worse happened. Ron seemed to sag on his broom. All the fight went out of him, and he said, I resign. I'm pathetic. You're not pathetic, and you're not resigning, said Harry fiercely, seizing Ron by the front of his robes. You can save anything when you're on form. It's a mental problem you've got. You calling me mental? Yeah, maybe I am. They glared at each other for a moment. Then Ron shook his head wearily. I know you haven't got any time to find another keeper. So I'll play tomorrow. But if we lose, and we will, I'm taking myself off the team. Nothing Harry said made any difference. He tried boosting Ron's confidence all through dinner, but Ron was too busy being grumpy and surly with Hermione to notice. Harry persisted in the common room that evening, but his assertion that the whole team would be devastated if Ron left was somewhat undermined by the fact that the rest of the team was sitting in a huddle in a distant corner, clearly muttering about Ron and casting him nasty looks. Finally, Harry tried getting angry again in the hope of provoking Ron into a defiant and hopefully goal-saving attitude, but this strategy did not appear to work any better than encouragement. Ron went to bed as dejected and hopeless as ever. Harry lay awake for a very long time in the darkness. He did not want to lose the upcoming match. Not only was it his first as captain, but he was determined to beat Draco Malfoy at Quidditch, even if he could not yet prove his suspicions about him. Yet if Ron played as he had done in the last few practices, their chances of winning were very slim. If only there was something he could do to make Ron pull himself together, make him play at the top of his form, something that would ensure that Ron had a really good day. And the answer came to Harry in one sudden glorious stroke of inspiration. Breakfast was the usual excitable affair next morning. The Slytherins hissed and booed loudly as every member of the Gryffindor team entered the Great Hall. Harry glanced at the ceiling and saw a clear, pale blue sky, a good omen. The Gryffindor table, a solid mass of red and gold, cheered as Harry and Ron approached. Harry grinned and waved. Ron grimaced weakly and shook his head. Cheer up, Ron, called Lavender. I know you'll be brilliant. Ron ignored her. Tea? Harry asked him. Coffee? Pumpkin juice? Anything, said Ron glumly, taking a moody bite of toast. A few minutes later, Hermione, who had become so tired of Ron's recent unpleasant behavior that she had not come down to breakfast with them, paused on her way up the table. How are you both feeling? She asked tentatively, her eyes on the back of Ron's head. Fine, said Harry, who was concentrating on handing Ron a glass of pumpkin juice. There you go, Ron. Drink up. Ron had just raised the glass to his lips when Hermione spoke sharply. Don't drink that, Ron. Both Harry and Ron looked up at her. Why not? said Ron. 
Hermione was now staring at Harry as though she could not believe her eyes. You just put something in that drink. Excuse me, said Harry. You heard me. I saw you. You just tipped something into Ron's drink. You've got the bottle in your hand right now. I don't know what you're talking about, said Harry, stowing the little bottle hastily in his pocket. Ron, I warn you, don't drink it, Hermione said again, alarmed. But Ron picked up the glass, drained it in one gulp, and said, Stop bossing me around, Hermione. She looked scandalized. Bending low so that only Harry could hear her, she hissed, You should be expelled for that. I'd never have believed it of you, Harry. Hark who's talking, he whispered back. Confounded anyone lately? She stormed up the table away from them. Harry watched her go without regret. Hermione had never really understood what a serious business Quidditch was. He then looked around at Ron, who was smacking his lips. Nearly time, said Harry blithely. The frosty grass crunched underfoot as they strode down to the stadium. Pretty lucky the weather's this good, eh? Harry asked Ron. Yeah, said Ron, who was pale and sick-looking. Ginny and Demelza were already wearing their Quidditch robes and waiting in the changing room. Conditions look ideal, said Ginny, ignoring Ron. And guess what? That Slytherin chaser, Vasey, he took a bludger in the head yesterday during their practice, and he's too sore to play. And even better than that, Malfoy's gone off sick too. What? said Harry, wheeling around to stare at her. He's ill? What's wrong with him? No idea. But it's great for us, said Ginny brightly. They're playing Harper instead. He's in my year and he's an idiot. Harry smiled back vaguely. But as he pulled on his scarlet robes, his mind was far from Quidditch. Malfoy had once before claimed he could not play due to injury, but on that occasion he had made sure the whole match was rescheduled for a time that suited the Slytherins better. Why was he now happy to let a substitute go on? Was he really ill, or was he faking? Fishy, isn't it? He said in an undertone to Ron, Malfoy not playing. Lucky, I call it said Ron, looking slightly more animated. And Vasey off too. He's their best goal scorer. I didn't fancy... Hey, he said suddenly, freezing halfway through pulling on his keeper's gloves and staring at Harry. What? I... you... Ron had dropped his voice and looked both scared and excited. My drink. My pumpkin juice. You didn't... Harry raised his eyebrows, but said nothing except... We'll be starting in about five minutes. You'd better get your boots on. They walked out onto the pitch to tumultuous roars and boos. One end of the stadium was solid red and gold, the other a sea of green and silver. Many Hufflepuffs and Ravenclaws had taken sides too. Amidst all the yelling and clapping, Harry could distinctly hear the roar of Luna Lovegood's famous lion-topped hat. Harry stepped up to Madame Hooch, the referee, who was standing ready to release the balls from the crate. Captain's chickens, she said, and Harry had his hand crushed by the new Slytherin captain, Urquhart. Mount your brooms, and the whistle, three, two, one. The whistle sounded. Harry and the others kicked off hard from the frozen ground, and they were away.
Harry soared around the perimeter of the grounds, looking around for the snitch and keeping one eye on Harper, who was zigzagging far below him. Then a voice that was jarringly different to the usual commentators started up. Well, there they go, and I think we're all surprised to see the team that Potter's put together this year. Many thought, given Ronald Weasley's patchy performance as keeper last year, that he might be off the team. But of course, a close personal friendship with the captain does help. These words were greeted with jeers and applause from the Slytherin end of the pitch. Harry craned around on his broom to look toward the commentator's podium. A tall, skinny, blonde boy with an upturned nose was standing there, talking into the magical megaphone that had once been Lee Jordan's. Harry recognized Zacharias Smith, a Hufflepuff player whom he heartily disliked. Oh, and here comes Slytherin's first attempt on goal. It's Urquhart streaking down the pitch and... Harry's stomach turned over. Weasley saves it well. He's bound to get lucky sometimes, I suppose. That's right, Smith, he is, muttered Harry, grinning to himself as he dived amongst the chasers with his eyes searching all around for some hint of the elusive snitch. With half an hour of the game gone, Gryffindor were leading sixty points to zero. Ron having made some truly spectacular saves, some by the very tips of his gloves, and Ginny having scored four of Gryffindor's six goals. This effectively stopped Zacharias wondering loudly whether the two Weasleys were only there because Harry liked them, and he started on Peaks and Coot instead. Of course, Coot isn't really the usual build for a beater, said Zacharias loftily. They've generally got a bit more muscle. Hit a bludger at him, Harry called to Coot as he zoomed past, but Coot, grinning broadly, chose to aim the next bludger at Harper instead who was just passing Harry in the opposite direction. Harry was pleased to hear the dull thunk that meant the bludger had found its mark. It seemed as though Gryffindor could do no wrong. Again and again they scored, and again and again, at the other end of the pitch, Ron saved goals with apparent ease. He was actually smiling now, and when the crowd greeted a particularly good save with a rousing chorus of the old favorite, Weasley is our king, he pretended to conduct them from on high. Thinks he's something special today, doesn't he? said a snide voice, and Harry was nearly knocked off his broom as Harper collided with him hard and deliberately. Your blood traitor, pal! Madame Hooch's back was turned, and though Gryffindor's below shouted in anger, by the time she looked around, Harper had already sped off. His shoulder aching, Harry raced after him, determined to ram him back. And I'd think Harper of Slytherin's seen the snitch, said Zacharias Smith through his megaphone. Yes, he's certainly seen something Potter hasn't. Smith really was an idiot, thought Harry. Hadn't he noticed them collide? But next moment, his stomach seemed to drop out of the sky. Smith was right, and Harry was wrong. Harper had not sped upward at random. He had spotted what Harry had not. The snitch was speeding along high above them, glinting brightly against the clear blue sky. Harry accelerated. The wind was whistling in his ears so that it drowned all sound of Smith's commentary or the crowd. But Harper was still ahead of him, and Gryffindor was only a hundred points up. If Harper got there first, Gryffindor had lost. And now Harper was feet from it, his hand outstretched. Oi, Harper! yelled Harry in desperation. How much did Malfoy pay you to come on instead of him? He did not know what made him say it, but Harper did a double take. 
He fumbled the snitch, let it slip through his fingers, and shot right past it. Harry made a great swipe for the tiny fluttering ball and caught it. Yes! Harry yelled. Wheeling around, he hurtled back toward the ground, the snitch held high in his hand. As the crowd realized what had happened, a great shout went up that almost drowned the sound of the whistle that signaled the end of the game. Ginny, where are you going? yelled Harry, who had found himself trapped in the midst of a mass mid-air hug with the rest of the team. But Ginny sped right on past them until, with an almighty crash, she collided with the commentator's podium. As the crowd shrieked and laughed, the Gryffindor team landed beside the wreckage of wood under which Zacharias was feebly stirring. Harry heard Ginny saying blithely to an irate Professor McGonagall, Forgot to break, Professor. Sorry. Laughing, Harry broke free of the rest of the team and hugged Ginny, but let go very quickly. Avoiding her gaze, he clapped a cheering Ron on the back instead as, all enmity forgotten, the Gryffindor team left the pitch, arm in arm, punching the air and waving to their supporters. The atmosphere in the changing room was jubilant. Party up in the common room, Seamus said, yelled Dean exuberantly. Come on, Ginny, to Melza. Ron and Harry were the last two in the changing room. They were just about to leave when Hermione entered. She was twisting her Gryffindor scarf in her hands and looked upset but determined. I want a word with you, Harry. She took a deep breath. You shouldn't have done it. You heard Slughorn. It's illegal. What are you going to do? Turn us in? demanded Ron. What are you two talking about? asked Harry, turning away to hang up his robes so that neither of them would see him grinning. You know perfectly well what we're talking about, said Hermione shrilly. You spiked Ron's juice with lucky potion at breakfast, Felix Felicis. No, I didn't, said Harry, turning back to face them both. Yes, you did, Harry, and that's why everything went right. There were Slytherin players missing, and Ron saved everything. I didn't put it in, said Harry, grinning broadly. He slipped his hand inside his jacket pocket and drew out the tiny bottle that Hermione had seen in his hand that morning. It was full of golden potion, and the cork was still tightly sealed with wax. I wanted Ron to think I'd done it, so I faked it when I knew you were looking. He looked at Ron. You saved everything because you felt lucky. You did it all yourself. He pocketed the potion again. There really wasn't anything in my pumpkin juice, Ron said, astounded. But the weather's good, and Vasey couldn't play. I honestly haven't been given lucky potion. Harry shook his head. Ron gaped at him for a moment, then rounded on Hermione, imitating her voice. You added Felix Felicis to Ron's juice this morning. That's why he saved everything. See, I can save goals without help, Hermione. I never said you couldn't. Ron, you thought you'd been given it too. But Ron had already strode past her out of the door with his broomstick over his shoulder. Uh, said Harry into the sudden silence. He had not expected his plan to backfire like this. Shall, shall we go up to the party then? You go, said Hermione, blinking back tears. I'm sick of Ron at the moment. I don't know what I'm supposed to have done. And she stormed out of the changing room, too. Harry walked slowly back up the grounds toward the castle through the crowd, 
many of whom shouted congratulations at him. But he felt a great sense of letdown. He had been sure that if Ron won the match, he and Hermione would be friends again immediately. He did not see how he could possibly explain to Hermione that what she had done to offend Ron was kiss Victor Crumb, not when the offense had occurred so long ago. Harry could not see Hermione at the Gryffindor celebration party, which was in full swing when he arrived. Renewed cheers and clapping greeted his appearance, and he was soon surrounded by a mob of people congratulating him. What with trying to shake off the Creevy brothers, who wanted a blow-by-blow match analysis, and the large group of girls that encircled him, laughing at his least amusing comments and batting their eyelids, it was some time before he could try and find Ron. At last, he extricated himself from Romilda Vane, who was hinting heavily that she would like to go to Slughorn's Christmas party with him. As he was ducking toward the drinks table, he walked straight into Ginny, Arnold the pygmy puff riding on her shoulder, and Crookshanks mewing hopefully at her heels. Looking for Ron? she asked, smirking. He's over there, the filthy hypocrite. Harry looked into the corner she was indicating. There, in full view of the whole room, stood Ron, wrapped so closely around Lavender Brown, it was hard to tell whose hands were whose. It looks like he's eating her face, doesn't it? said Ginny dispassionately. But I suppose he's got to refine his technique somehow. Good game, Harry. She patted him on the arm. Harry felt a swooping sensation in his stomach, but then she walked off to help herself to more butterbeer. Crookshanks trotted after her, his yellow eyes fixed upon Arnold. Harry turned away from Ron, who did not look like he would be surfacing soon, just as the portrait hole was closing. With a sinking feeling, he thought he saw a mane of bushy brown hair whipping out of sight. He darted forward, sidestepped Romilda Vane again, and pushed open the portrait of the fat lady. The corridor outside seemed to be deserted. Hermione! He found her in the first unlocked classroom he tried. She was sitting on the teacher's desk, alone, except for a small ring of twittering yellow birds circling her head, which he had clearly just conjured out of midair. Harry could not help admiring her spellwork at a time like this. Oh, hello, Harry, she said in a brittle voice. I was just practicing. Yeah, there, uh, really good, said Harry. He had no idea what to say to her. He was just wondering whether there was any chance that she had not noticed Ron, that she had merely left the room because the party was a little too rowdy, when she said, in an unnaturally high-pitched voice, Ron seems to be enjoying the celebrations. Uh, does he? said Harry. Don't pretend you didn't see him, said Hermione. He wasn't exactly hiding it, was... The door behind them burst open. To Harry's horror, Ron came in, laughing, pulling Lavender by the hand. Oh, he said, drawing up short at the sight of Harry and Hermione. Oops, said Lavender, and she backed out of the room, giggling. The door swung shut behind her. There was a horrible, swelling, billowing silence. Hermione was staring at Ron, who refused to look at her, but said, with an odd mixture of bravado and awkwardness, Hi, Harry. Wondered where you'd got to. Hermione slid off the desk. The little flock of golden birds continued to twitter in circles around her head so that she looked like a strange, feathery model of the solar system. You shouldn't leave Lavender waiting outside, she said quietly. She'll wonder where you've gone. 
She walked very slowly and erectly toward the door. Harry glanced at Ron, who was looking relieved that nothing worse had happened. Hopagno! came a shriek from the doorway. Harry spun around to see Hermione pointing her wand at Ron, her expression wild. The little flock of birds was speeding like a hail of fat golden bullets toward Ron, who yelped and covered his face with his hands, but the birds attacked, pecking and clawing at every bit of flesh they could reach. Get him off me, he yelled. But with one last look of vindictive fury, Hermione wrenched open the door and disappeared through it. Harry thought he heard a sob before it slammed. Chapter 15 The Unbreakable Vow Snow was swirling against the icy windows once more. Christmas was approaching fast. Hagrid had already single-handedly delivered the usual twelve Christmas trees for the Great Hall. Garlands of holly and tinsel had been twisted around the banisters of the stairs. Everlasting candles glowed from inside the helmets of suits of armor, and great bunches of mistletoe had been hung at intervals along the corridors. Large groups of girls tended to converge underneath the mistletoe bunches every time Harry went past, which caused blockages in the corridors. Fortunately, however, Harry's frequent nighttime wanderings had given him an unusually good knowledge of the castle's secret passageways, so that he was able, without too much difficulty, to navigate mistletoe-free routes between classes. Ron, who might once have found the necessity of these detours a cause for jealousy rather than hilarity, simply roared with laughter about it all. Although Harry much preferred this new, laughing, joking Ron to the moody, aggressive model he had been enduring for the last few weeks, the improved Ron came at a heavy price. Firstly, Harry had to put up with the frequent presence of Lavender Brown, who seemed to regard any moment that she was not kissing Ron as a moment wasted. And secondly, Harry found himself once more the best friend of two people who seemed unlikely ever to speak to each other again. Ron, whose hands and forearms still bore scratches and cuts from Hermione's bird attack, was taking a defensive and resentful tone. She can't complain, he told Harry. She snogged Crumb, so she's found out someone wants to snog me, too. Well, it's a free country. I haven't done anything wrong. Harry did not answer, but pretended to be absorbed in the book they were supposed to have read before charms next morning. Quintessence, a quest. Determined as he was to remain friends with both Ron and Hermione, he was spending a lot of time with his mouth shut tight. I never promised Hermione anything, Ron mumbled. I mean, all right. I was going to go to Slughorn's Christmas party with her, but she never said, just as friends. I'm a free agent. Harry turned a page of quintessence, aware that Ron was watching him. Ron's voice tailed away in mutters, barely audible over the loud crackling of the fire, though Harry thought he caught the words, crumb, and can't complain, again. Hermione's schedule was so full that Harry could only talk to her properly in the evenings, when Ron was, in any case, so tightly wrapped around Lavender that he did not notice what Harry was doing. Hermione refused to sit in the common room while Ron was there, so Harry generally joined her in the library, which meant that their conversations were held in whispers. He's at perfect liberty to kiss whomever he likes, said Hermione, while the librarian, Madame Pince, prowled the shelves behind them. I really couldn't care less. 
She raised her quill and dotted an eye so ferociously that she punctured a hole in her parchment. Harry said nothing. He thought his voice might soon vanish from lack of use. He bent a little lower over advanced potion-making and continued to make notes on everlasting elixirs, occasionally pausing to decipher the prince's useful additions to Libatius Borridge's text. And, incidentally, said Hermione after a few moments, you need to be careful. For the last time, said Harry, speaking in a slightly hoarse whisper after three quarters of an hour of silence, I am not giving back this book. I've learnt more from the half-blood prince than Snape or Slughorn have taught me in. I'm not talking about your stupid so-called prince, said Hermione, giving his book a nasty look as though it had been rude to her. I'm talking about earlier. I went into the girls' bathroom just before I came in here, and there were about a dozen girls in there, including that Romilda Vane, trying to decide how to slip you a love potion. They're all hoping they're going to get you to take them to Slughorn's party, and they all seem to have bought Fred and George's love potions, which I'm afraid to say probably work. Why didn't you confiscate them then? demanded Harry. It seemed extraordinary that Hermione's mania for upholding rules could have abandoned her at this crucial juncture. They didn't have the potions with them in the bathroom, said Hermione scornfully. They were just discussing tactics, as I doubt whether even the half-blood prince, she gave the book another nasty look, could dream up an antidote for a dozen different love potions at once. I'd just invite someone to go with you. That'll stop all the others thinking they've still got a chance. It's tomorrow night. They're getting desperate. There isn't anyone I want to invite, mumbled Harry, who was still trying not to think about Ginny any more than he could help, despite the fact that she kept cropping up in his dreams in ways that made him devoutly thankful that Ron could not perform legitimacy. Well, just be careful what you drink, because Romilda Vane looked like she meant business, said Hermione grimly. She hitched up the long roll of parchment on which she was writing her arithmancy essay, and continued to scratch away with her quill. Harry watched her with his mind a long way away. Hang on a moment, he said slowly. I thought Filch had banned anything brought at Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. And when has anyone ever paid attention to what Filch has banned? asked Hermione, still concentrating on her essay. But I thought all the owls were being searched. So how come these girls are able to bring love potions into school? Fred and George send them disguised as perfumes and cough potions, said Hermione. It's part of their owl order service. You know a lot about it. Hermione gave him the kind of nasty look she had just given his copy of advanced potion making. It was all on the back of the bottles they showed Ginny and me in the summer, she said coldly. I don't go around putting potions in people's drinks or pretending to either, which is just as bad. Yeah, well, never mind that, said Harry quickly. The point is, Filch is being fooled, isn't he? These girls are getting stuff into the school disguised as something else. So why couldn't Malfoy have brought the necklace into the school? Oh, Harry, not that again. Come on, why not? demanded Harry. Look, sighed Hermione. Secrecy sensors detect jinxes, curses, and concealment charms, don't they? They're used to find dark magic and dark objects. They'd have picked up a powerful curse, like the one on that necklace within seconds, but something that's just been put in the wrong bottle wouldn't register. And anyway, love potions aren't dark or dangerous.
Easy for you to say, muttered Harry, thinking of Romilda Vane. So it would be down to Filch to realize it wasn't a cough potion, and he's not a very good wizard. I doubt he can tell one potion from... Hermione stopped dead. Harry had heard it, too. Somebody had moved close behind them among the dark bookshelves. They waited, and a moment later the vulture-like countenance of Madame Pince appeared around the corner, her sunken cheeks, her skin like parchment, and her long hooked nose illuminated unflatteringly by the lamp she was carrying. The library is now closed, she said. Mind you return anything you have borrowed to the correct. What have you been doing to that book, you depraved boy? It isn't the library's, it's mine, said Harry hastily, snatching his copy of advanced potion-making off the table as she lunged at it with a claw-like hand. Despoiled, she hissed. Desecrated. Befouled. It's just a book that's been written on, said Harry, tugging it out of her grip. She looked as though she might have a seizure. Hermione, who had hastily packed her things, grabbed Harry by the arm and frog-marched him away. She'll ban you from the library if you're not careful. Why did you have to bring that stupid book? It's not my fault she's barking mad, Hermione. Or do you think she overheard you being rude about Filch? I've always thought there might be something going on between them. Oh, ha, ha. Enjoying the fact that they could speak normally again, they made their way along the deserted, lamplit corridors back to the common room, arguing about whether or not Filch and Madame Pince were secretly in love with each other. Baubles, said Harry to the fat lady, this being the new festive password. Same to you, said the fat lady with a roguish grin, and she swung forward to admit them. Hi, Harry, said Romilda Vane, the moment he had climbed through the portrait hole. Fancy a gillywater? Hermione gave him a what-did-I-tell-you look over her shoulder. No thanks, said Harry quickly. I don't like it much. Well, take these anyway, said Romilda, thrusting a box into his hands. Chocolate cauldrons. They've got fire whiskey in them. My gran sent them to me, but I don't like them. Oh, right. Thanks a lot, said Harry who could not think what else to say. Ah, uh, I'm just going over here with... He hurried off behind Hermione, his voice tailing away feebly. Told you, said Hermione succinctly. Sooner you are someone, sooner they'll all leave you alone, and you can... But her face suddenly turned blank. She had just spotted Ron and Lavender, who were entwined in the same armchair. Well, good night, Harry said Hermione, though it was only seven o'clock in the evening, and she left for the girls' dormitory without another word. Harry went to bed, comforting himself that there was only one more day of lessons to struggle through, plus Slughorn's party, after which he and Ron would depart together for the burrow. It now seemed impossible that Ron and Hermione would make up with each other before the holidays began, but perhaps, somehow, the break would give them time to calm down, think better of their behavior. But his hopes were not high, and they sank still lower after enduring a transfiguration lesson with them both next day. They had just embarked upon the immensely difficult topic of human transfiguration. Working in front of mirrors, they were supposed to be changing the color of their own eyebrows. Hermione laughed unkindly at Ron's disastrous first attempt, during which he somehow managed to give himself a spectacular handlebar mustache. 
Ron retaliated by doing a cruel but accurate impression of Hermione jumping up and down in her seat every time Professor McGonagall asked a question, which Lavender and Parvati found deeply amusing, and which reduced Hermione to the verge of tears again. She raced out of the classroom on the bell, leaving half her things behind. Harry, deciding that her need was greater than Ron's just now, scooped up her remaining possessions and followed her. He finally tracked her down as she emerged from a girl's bathroom on the floor below. She was accompanied by Luna Lovegood, who was patting her vaguely on the back. Oh, hello, Harry, said Luna. Did you know one of your eyebrows is bright yellow? Hi, Luna. Hermione, you left your stuff. He held out her books. Oh, yes, said Hermione in a choked voice, taking her things and turning away quickly to hide the fact that she was wiping her eyes on her pencil case. Thank you, Harry. Well, I'd better get going. And she hurried off without giving Harry any time to offer words of comfort, though admittedly he could not think of any. She's a bit upset, said Luna. I thought at first it was moaning Myrtle in there, but it turned out to be Hermione. She said something about that Ron Weasley. Yeah, they've had a row, said Harry. He says very funny things sometimes, doesn't he? said Luna as they set off down the corridor together. But he can be a bit unkind. I noticed that last year. I suppose, said Harry. Luna was demonstrating her usual knack of speaking uncomfortable truths. He had never met anyone quite like her. So, have you had a good term? Oh, it's been all right, said Luna. A bit lonely without the DA. Ginny's been nice, though. She stopped two boys in our transfiguration class calling me Looney the other day. How would you like to come to Slughorn's party with me tonight? The words were out of Harry's mouth before he could stop them. He heard himself say them as though it were a stranger speaking. Luna turned her protuberant eyes upon him in surprise. Slughorn's party? With you? Yeah, said Harry. We're supposed to bring guests, so I thought you might like, I mean. He was keen to make his intentions perfectly clear. I mean, just as friends, you know, but if you don't want to. He was already half hoping that she didn't want to. Oh, no, I'd love to go with you as friends, said Luna, beaming as he had never seen her beam before. Nobody's ever asked me to a party before as a friend. Is that why you dyed your eyebrow for the party? Should I do mine, too? No, said Harry firmly. That was a mistake. I'll get Hermione to put it right for me. So, I'll meet you in the entrance hall at eight o'clock, then? Ha-ha! <laughs> screamed a voice from overhead, and both of them jumped. Unnoticed by either of them, they had just passed right underneath Peeves who was hanging upside down from a chandelier and grinning maliciously at them. Potty asked Looney to go to the party. Potty loves Looney. Potty loves Looney. And he zoomed away, cackling and shrieking. Potty loves Looney. Nice to keep these things private, said Harry. And sure enough, in no time at all, the whole school seemed to know that Harry Potter was taking Luna Lovegood to Slughorn's party. You could have taken anyone, 
said Ron in disbelief over dinner. Anyone! And you chose Looney Lovegood? Don't call her that, Ron, snapped Ginny, pausing behind Harry on her way to join friends. I'm really glad you're taking her, Harry. She's so excited. And she moved on down the table to sit with Dean. Harry tried to feel pleased that Ginny was glad he was taking Luna to the party, but could not quite manage it. A long way along the table, Hermione was sitting alone, playing with her stew. Harry noticed Ron looking at her furtively. You could say sorry, suggested Harry bluntly. What? And get attacked by another flock of canaries? muttered Ron. What did you have to imitate her for? She laughed at my moustache. So did I. It was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. But Ron did not seem to have heard. Lavender had just arrived with Parvati. Squeezing herself in between Harry and Ron, Lavender flung her arms around Ron's neck. Hi, Harry, said Parvati, who, like him, looked faintly embarrassed and bored by the behavior of their two friends. Hi, said Harry. How are you? You're staying at Hogwarts, then. I heard your parents wanted you to leave. I managed to talk them out of it for the time being, said Parvati. That Katie thing really freaked them out, but as there hasn't been anything since. Oh, hi, Hermione. Parvati positively beamed. Harry could tell that she was feeling guilty for having laughed at Hermione in transfiguration. He looked around and saw that Hermione was beaming back, if possible even more brightly. Girls were very strange sometimes. Hi, Parvati, said Hermione, ignoring Ron and Lavender completely. Are you going to Slughorn's party tonight? No invite, said Parvati gloomily. I'd love to go, though. It sounds like it's going to be really good. You're going, aren't you? Yes. I'm meeting Cormac at eight, and we're... There was a noise like a plunger being withdrawn from a block sink, and Ron surfaced. Hermione acted as though she had not seen or heard anything. We're going up to the party together. Cormac, said Parvati. Cormac McLagan, you mean? That's right, said Hermione sweetly. The one who almost, she put a great deal of emphasis on the word, became Gryffindor Keeper. Are you going out with him then? asked Parvati wide-eyed. Oh, yes, <laughs> didn't you know? said Hermione, with a most un-Hermione-ish giggle. No, said Parvati, looking positively agog at this piece of gossip. Wow, you like your Quidditch players, don't you? First Crumb, then McLagan. I like really good Quidditch players, Hermione corrected her, still smiling. Well, see you. Got to go and get ready for the party. She left. At once, Lavender and Parvati put their heads together to discuss this new development, with everything they had ever heard about McLagan and all they had ever guessed about Hermione. Ron looked strangely blank and said nothing. Harry was left to ponder in silence the depths to which girls would sink to get revenge. When he arrived in the entrance hall at eight o'clock that night, he found an unusually large number of girls lurking there, all of whom seemed to be staring at him resentfully as he approached Luna. She was wearing a set of spangled silver robes that were attracting a certain amount of giggles from the onlookers, but otherwise she looked quite nice. Harry was glad in any case that she had left off her radish earrings, her butterbeer cork necklace, and her specter specs. Hi, he said. Shall we get going then? 
Oh, yes, she said happily. Where is the party? Slughorn's office, said Harry, leading her up the marble staircase away from all the staring and muttering. Did you hear there's supposed to be a vampire coming? Rufus Scrimjaw? asked Luna. I- What? said Harry, disconcerted. You mean the Minister of Magic? Yes, he's a vampire, said Luna matter-of-factly. Father wrote a very long article about it when Scrimjaw first took over from Cornelius Fudge, but he was forced not to publish by somebody from the Ministry. Obviously, they didn't want the truth to get out. Harry, who thought it most unlikely that Rufus Scrimjaw was a vampire, but who was used to Luna repeating her father's bizarre views as though they were fact, did not reply. They were already approaching Slughorn's office, and the sounds of laughter, music, and loud conversation were growing louder with every step they took. Whether it had been built that way, or because he had used magical trickery to make it so, Slughorn's office was much larger than the usual teacher's study. The ceiling and walls had been draped with emerald, crimson, and gold hangings, so that it looked as though they were all inside a vast tent. The room was crowded and stuffy, and bathed in the red light cast by an ornate golden lamp dangling from the center of the ceiling, in which real fairies were fluttering, each a brilliant speck of light. Loud singing accompanied by what sounded like mandolins issued from a distant corner. A haze of pipe smoke hung over several elderly warlocks deep in conversation, and a number of house elves were negotiating their way squeakily through the forest of knees, obscured by the heavy silver platters of food they were bearing, so that they looked like little roving tables. Harry, my boy, boomed Slughorn, almost as soon as Harry and Luna had squeezed in through the door. Come in, come in, so many people I'd like you to meet. Slughorn was wearing a tasseled velvet hat to match his smoking jacket. Gripping Harry's arm so tightly he might have been hoping to disapparate with him, Slughorn led him purposefully into the party. Harry seized Luna's hand and dragged her along with him. Harry, I'd like you to meet Eldred Warple, an old student of mine, author of Blood Brothers, My Life Amongst the Vampires, and, of course, his friend Sanguini. Warple, who was a small, stout, bespectacled man, grabbed Harry's hand and shook it enthusiastically. The vampire Sanguini, who was tall and emaciated, with dark shadows under his eyes, merely nodded. He looked rather bored. A gaggle of girls was standing close to him, looking curious and excited. Harry Potter, I am simply delighted, said Warple, peering short-sightedly up into Harry's face. I was saying to Professor Slunkhorn only the other day, where is the biography of Harry Potter for which we have all been waiting? Ah, uh, said Harry, were you? Just as modest as Horace described, said Warple, but seriously. His manner changed. It became suddenly businesslike. I would be delighted to write it myself. People are craving to know more about you, dear boy, craving. If you were prepared to grant me a few interviews, say in four or five hour sessions, why, we could have the book finished within months, and all with very little effort on your part, I assure you. Ask Sanguini here if it isn't quite Sanguini, stay here added Warple, suddenly stern, for the vampire had been edging toward the nearby group of girls, a rather hungry look in his eye. 
Here, have a pasty, said Warple, seizing one from a passing elf and stuffing it into Sanguini's hand before turning his attention back to Harry. My dear boy, the gold you could make, you have no idea. I'm definitely not interested, said Harry firmly, and I've just seen a friend of mine. Sorry. He pulled Luna after him into the crowd. He had indeed just seen a long mane of brown hair disappear between what looked like two members of the Weird Sisters. Hermione! Hermione! Harry! There you are! Thank goodness! Hi, Luna! What's happened to you? asked Harry, for Hermione looked distinctly disheveled, rather as though she had just fought her way out of a thicket of devil's snare. Oh, I've just escaped. I mean, I've just left Cormac, she said. Under the mistletoe, she added in explanation, as Harry continued to look questioningly at her. Serves you right for coming with him, he told her severely. I thought he'd annoy Ron most, said Hermione dispassionately. I debated for a while about Zachariah Smith, but I thought, on the whole. You considered Smith, said Harry, revolted. Yes, I did. And I'm starting to wish I'd chosen him. McLagan makes Grawp look a gentleman. Let's go this way. We'll be able to see him coming. He's so tall. The three of them made their way over to the other side of the room, scooping up goblets of mead on the way, realizing too late that Professor Trelawney was standing there alone. Hello, said Luna politely to Professor Trelawney. Good evening, my dear, said Professor Trelawney, focusing upon Luna with some difficulty. Harry could smell cooking sherry again. I haven't seen you in my classes lately. No, I've got Ferenzi this year, said Luna. Oh, of course, said Professor Trelawney with an angry, drunken titter. Or Dobbin, as I prefer to think of him. You would have thought, would you not, that now I am returned to the school. Professor Dumbledore might have got rid of the horse, but no. We share classes. It's an insult, frankly, an insult. Do you know... Professor Trelawney seemed too tipsy to have recognized Harry. Under cover of her furious criticisms of Ferenzi, Harry drew closer to Hermione and said, Let's get something straight. Are you planning to tell Ron that you interfered at Keeper tryouts? Hermione raised her eyebrows. Do you really think I'd stoop that low? Harry looked at her shrewdly. Hermione, if you can ask out McLagan, there's a difference, said Hermione with dignity. I've got no plans to tell Ron anything about what might or might not have happened at Keeper tryouts. Good said Harry fervently, because he'll just fall apart again, and we'll lose the next match. Quidditch, said Hermione angrily. Is that all boys care about? Cormac hasn't asked me one single question about myself, no. I've just been treated to a hundred great saves made by Cormac McLagan. None stop ever since. Oh no, here he comes. She moved so fast, it was as though she had disapparated. One moment she was there, the next she had squeezed between two guffawing witches and vanished. Seen Hermione? asked McLagan, forcing his way through the throng a minute later. No, sorry, said Harry, and he turned quickly to join in Luna's conversation, forgetting for a split second to whom she was talking. Harry Potter, said Professor Trelawney in deep, vibrant tones, noticing him for the first time. Oh, hello, said Harry unenthusiastically. My dear boy, 
she said in a very carrying whisper. The rumors, the stories, the chosen one. Of course, I have known for a very long time. The omens were never good, Harry. But why have you not returned to divination? For you, of all people, the subject is of the utmost importance. Ah, Sybil, we all think our subjects most important, said a loud voice, and Slughorn appeared at Professor Trelawney's other side, his face very red, his velvet hat a little askew, a glass of mead in one hand and an enormous mince pie in the other. But I don't think I've ever known such a natural at potions, said Slughorn, regarding Harry with a fond, if bloodshot eye. Instinctive, you know, like his mother. I've only ever taught a few with this kind of ability. I can tell you that, Sybil, by even Severus. And to Harry's horror, Slughorn threw out an arm and seemed to scoop Snape out of thin air toward them. Sup, Skull King, and come and join us, Severus, hiccuped Slughorn happily. I was just talking about Harry's exceptional potion-making. Some credit must go to you, of course. You taught him for five years. Trapped with Slughorn's arm around his shoulders, Snape looked down his hooked nose at Harry, his black eyes narrowed. Funny, I never had the impression that I managed to teach Potter anything at all. Well, then, it's natural ability, shouted Slughorn. You should have seen what he gave me. First lesson, draft of living death. Never had a student produce finer on a first attempt. I don't think even you, Severus. Really, said Snape quietly, his eyes still boring into Harry, who felt a certain disquiet. The last thing he wanted was for Snape to start investigating the source of his newfound brilliance at potions. Remind me what other subjects you're taking, Harry, asked Slughorn. Defense against the dark arts, charms, transfiguration, herbology, all the subjects required in short for an auror, said Snape with the faintest sneer. Yeah, well, that's what I'd like to do, said Harry defiantly. And a great one you'll make too, boomed Slughorn. I don't think you should be an Auror, Harry, said Luna unexpectedly. Everybody looked at her. The Aurors are part of the Rotfang conspiracy. I thought everyone knew that. They're working to bring down the Ministry of Magic from within using a combination of dark magic and gum disease. Harry inhaled half his mead up his nose as he started to laugh. Really, it had been worth bringing Luna just for this. Emerging from his goblet, coughing, sopping wet but still grinning, he saw something calculated to raise his spirits even higher. Draco Malfoy being dragged by the ear toward them by Argus Filch. Professor Slughorn, wheezed Filch, his jowls a-quiver and the maniacal light of mischief detection in his bulging eyes. I discovered this boy lurking in an upstairs corridor. He claims to have been invited to your party and to have been delayed in setting out. Did you issue him with an invitation? Malfoy pulled himself free of Filch's grip, looking furious. All right. I wasn't invited, he said angrily. I was trying to gatecrash. Happy? No, I'm not, said Filch, a statement at complete odds with a glee on his face. You're in trouble, you are. Didn't the headmaster say that nighttime prowling's out? Unless you've got permission, didn't he? Hey? That's all right, Argus, that's all right. 
said Slughorn, waving a hand. It's Christmas, and it's not a crime to want to come to a party. Just this once, we'll forget any punishment. You may stay, Draco. Filch's expression of outraged disappointment was perfectly predictable. But why, Harry wondered, watching him, did Malfoy look almost equally unhappy? And why was Snape looking at Malfoy as though both angry and, was it possible, a little afraid? But almost before Harry had registered what he had seen, Filch had turned and shuffled away, muttering under his breath. Malfoy had composed his face into a smile and was thanking Slughorn for his generosity, and Snape's face was smoothly inscrutable again. It's nothing, nothing, said Slughorn, waving away Malfoy's thanks. I did know your grandfather after all. He always spoke very highly of you, sir, said Malfoy quickly. Said you were the best potion maker he'd ever known. Harry stared at Malfoy. It was not the sucking up that intrigued him. He had watched Malfoy do that to Snape for a long time. It was the fact that Malfoy did, after all, look a little ill. This was the first time he had seen Malfoy close up for ages. He now saw that Malfoy had dark shadows under his eyes and a distinctly grayish tinge to his skin. I'd like a word with you, Draco, said Snape suddenly. Oh, now, Severus, <coughs> said Slughorn, hiccuping again. It's Christmas. Don't be too hard. I'm his head of house, and I shall decide how hard or otherwise to be, said Snape curtly. Follow me, Draco. They left, Snape leading the way, Malfoy looking resentful. Harry stood there for a moment, irresolute, then said, I'll be back in a bit, Luna. Uh, bathroom. All right, she said cheerfully, and he thought he heard her, as he hurried off into the crowd, resume the subject of the rot-fang conspiracy with Professor Trelawney, who seemed sincerely interested. It was easy, once out of the party, to pull his invisibility cloak out of his pocket and throw it over himself, for the corridor was quite deserted. What was more difficult was finding Snape and Malfoy. Harry ran down the corridor, the noise of his feet masked by the music and loud talk still issuing from Slughorn's office behind him. Perhaps Snape had taken Malfoy to his office in the dungeons, or perhaps he was escorting him back to the Slithering common room. Harry pressed his ear against door after door as he dashed down the corridor until, with a great jolt of excitement, he crouched down to the keyhole of the last classroom in the corridor and heard voices. Cannot afford mistakes, Draco, because if you are expelled, I didn't have anything to do with it, all right? I hope you are telling the truth, because it was both clumsy and foolish. Already you are suspected of having a hand in it. Who suspects me, said Malfoy angrily. For the last time, I didn't do it, okay? That bell girl must have had an enemy no one knows about. Don't look at me like that. I know what you're doing. I'm not stupid, but it won't work. I can stop you. There was a pause, and then Snape said quietly, Ah, Aunt Bellatrix has been teaching you occlumency, I see. What thoughts are you trying to conceal from your master, Draco? I'm not trying to conceal anything from him. I just don't want you butting in. Harry pressed his ear still more closely against the keyhole. What had happened to make Malfoy speak to Snape like this? Snape, toward whom he had always shown respect, even liking. 
So that is why you've been avoiding me this term. You have feared my interference. You realize that had anybody else failed to come to my office when I had told them repeatedly to be there, Traeger? So put me in detention. Report me to Dumbledore, jeered Malfoy. There was another pause, then Snape said, You know perfectly well that I do not wish to do either of those things. You'd better stop telling me to come to your office, then. Listen to me, said Snape, his voice so low now that Harry had to push his ear very hard against the keyhole to hear. I am trying to help you. I swore to your mother I would protect you. I made the unbreakable vow, Draco. Looks like you'll have to break it, then, because I don't need your protection. It's my job. He gave it to me, and I'm doing it. I've got a plan, and it's going to work. It's just taking a bit longer than I thought it would. What is your plan? It's none of your business. If you tell me what you are trying to do, I can assist you. I've got all the assistance I need, thanks. I'm not alone. You were certainly alone tonight, which was foolish in the extreme, wandering the corridors without lookouts or backup. These are elementary mistakes. I would have had Crab and Goyle with me if you hadn't put them in detention. Keep your voice down, spat Snape, for Malfoy's voice had risen excitedly. If your friends, Crab and Goyle, intend to pass their defense against the Dark Arts OWL this time around, they will need to work a little harder than they are doing at press. What does it matter, said Malfoy. Defense against the Dark Arts. It's all just a joke, isn't it? An act like any of us need protecting against the Dark Arts. It is an act that is crucial to success, Draco, said Snape. Where do you think I would have been all these years if I had not known how to act? Now listen to me. You are being incautious, wandering around at night, getting yourself caught. And if you are placing your reliance in assistance like Crab and Goyle, they're not the only ones. I've got other people on my side. Better people. Then why not confide in me, and I can... I know what you're up to. You want to steal my glory. There was another pause, then Snape said coldly, You are speaking like a child. I quite understand that your father's capture and imprisonment has upset you, but... Harry had barely a second's warning. He heard Malfoy's footsteps on the other side of the door and flung himself out of the way, just as it burst open. Malfoy was striding away down the corridor, past the open door of Slughorn's office, around the distant corner, and out of sight. Hardly daring to breathe, Harry remained crouched down as Snape emerged slowly from the classroom. His expression unfathomable. He returned to the party. Harry remained on the floor, hidden beneath the cloak his mind racing.